Welcome again to This Is Hardcore Podcast. Our next guest is someone who I am very close with and came to know through working at This Is Hardcore and then working for me on various art projects and just day of stuff for This Is Hardcore. And she had one of the most daunting tasks, which is compiling the retarded amount of names that we get to put on these laminates that everyone loves posting about. That is not why she's on the show. Madison Watkins is one of the most driven, obsessive, and as you'll hear, ADHD type people I've ever met in my life. She is from a family of creative, intelligent humans, and she has this never-die, take-no-shit, kick some ass in the most polite way manner and drive that has made her go from working at the Delaware Park and Rec, yes, just like the TV show, to running her own brand, Candy Corpse, and also being a force within Year of the Knife. If you're a new band or you're someone who's looking or has a business, there is so much in this conversation that you can reap and use in your own life. So let's get to it. I introduced you as artistic, creative, and obsessive, and potentially ADHD, I should have added. <laughs> that being said, I'd like to hear your thoughts on if I was accurate in that assessment. Yeah, I definitely do think that's an accurate assessment of me. Um, my brain is kind of all over the place all the time, yet always super hyper-focused on what I'm doing and all the tasks that are going on. And I am a bit obsessive when it comes to the quality of my work and the execution of it. So I definitely think that is an accurate assessment of me. You are one of the people that I think, I don't know if it is because of just how well I know you or just because I've seen your evolution and just constant drive. But one of the interesting things about you is that you just don't, you don't plateau or you haven't yet. And you're constantly pushing yourself past what you're on to what I'm doing next, but we got to start somewhere. So let's start as early as we can, where you're interacting with music that would put you towards heavy, hardcore kind of music? So it's funny because my mom actually likes punk music and like some heavier music, but I didn't really learn that until I got more into hardcore myself. Um, she like she would play stuff like The Clash, but she wouldn't really... Like I found out later my mom liked the Cro-Mags, but I never really heard her playing them growing up. Um, so my first real introduction with heavy music, I went to an art school for middle school and high school, and uh, there was a girl that I went to school with that I think she was like more into like new metal and like some metal, but she would play like uh, like System of a Down and Slipknot and uh, sometimes like Ramstein and stuff at school. And I heard it and I was like, oh, that music's really sick. And she was talking to me about the Grange, which is a venue in Northern Delaware, or it was a venue. And um, she was like, she rode the bus with me. So she was like, it's right by our house. Like, have you ever been there? And I was like, no, I've, I've never been to any shows there. And this was in like sixth grade. So I was like 11 or 12. And uh, she, I actually went with her to my first show at the Grange. 
And that's what like really, really got me interested in heavy music and kind of exposed me to the first time for like hardcore and metal and, you know, death metal and stuff like that. Cause the Grange had all sorts of shows every single weekend. Now you are not only a musician, but an artiste and a graphic design wizard and great with web design. So you have a background in art and these other things, which one came first of the three disciplines? Oh, so I actually, I didn't get really into graphic design until I was in college, which is funny because I did go to an art school and they had a really good uh, visual arts program and they had like a digital arts and like a more fine art traditional. But um, there's a lot of other people in my family that are very artistic and like really skilled painters and sculptors. And I felt like I just wasn't that good. So I was always afraid to kind of go into that and fail. So it's funny that I did musical theater when I was in like uh, middle school and high school. And then once I got into college, that's when I really actually went into like graphic design. Um, and from graphic design, I found web design and just kind of fell in love with coding and sort of ran with it. Um, but yeah, like I was always interested in, in drawing and, and taking pictures and stuff like that, but I never really showed that passion or expressed it or showed anyone else what I was working on until I got out of high school. Cause I just felt like it was mediocre what about the musical end of things? Did you um, try music before you found music or were you oh, yeah. more focused on uh, childhood things? And where did art come into play as well? Yeah. So I, I grew up with my grandparents and they had like a stand up piano in one of like the living rooms. And that's when I first like really, really got attached to music was I like taught myself how to read sheet music and I would play on their piano and then as I got older, I got really interested in guitar, especially like once I started having an interest in music and before it was before uh, middle school. So it was before I found like hardcore metal or anything, but uh, my mom loved Green Day. And I remember she got me like a guitar for maybe my ninth or 10th birthday. And then I was just like learning Green Day, <laughs> and, like playing different songs on that. Um, and then I definitely was still super interested in music and wanting to pursue it even while I was at school, but it was just really difficult to find someone that wanted to start a heavier band. Most people wanted to do like show tunes covers and like organized dances and shit. Show tunes covers. Show tunes covers. They're out I, there. That just threw me through a great curve. <laughs> but, I, but that's, that's the great thing about you is how um, just insane diverse your influences are. So you are in middle school, heading into high school. And at this point, have you drawn? Are you just doing digital stuff? What are you doing with art? Uh, in middle school, I really just did more like colored pencil and like sketching. Like I did, I didn't do anything digital. And I remember uh, my stepdad at the time was a photographer. So I would like mess around with his film cameras and stuff. But I, I hadn't really done anything digital until probably senior year of high school i think one of my friends gave me like a torrented version of a photoshop and illustrator <laughs> so you've got a punk rock mom you have an inventor grandfather and you have artists in your family so i'm not surprised that you ended up in the creative world that you were at and uh where do you would if you had to say of all the people in your family, 
do you still see their influences even the stuff you're into today or do you think that was just more like in the foundation of what got you onto what you're in right now i think that definitely my mom was kind of always more like free-spirited and liked a lot of different she definitely opened my mind to like listen to as much music as you can and like find the stuff that you love because she's very very like the type of person that listening to music is kind of like therapy so I think that definitely had an impact on me and certainly my grandfather was such a hard worker and just had such a brilliant mind that I think that he definitely had a huge huge influence on me to like continue working hard to reach for your goals to never be happy with you know, what you have until you get to the next level of what you're trying to do. So I think that those principles are definitely still heavily with me, but I think that I kind of took that and made it into my own thing. Cause I, I don't do exactly what anyone in my, in my family has done. Now, where did you decide to take uh, high school at? And what was the reason behind that? So I went to uh it was a school called Cab Calloway. It's in Wilmington, Delaware, and it's an art school. And you have to audition to get into the school. And when I was younger, I was like really, really had my heart set on being an actress or being a singer or some combination of the two. Um, so I, you know, I really, really wanted to go to art school when they were talking about the different like tech schools in Delaware. That was the one that I wanted to go to. Um, and it was just funny because like as I kind of went up through going to art school, I still loved it and I still really enjoyed my experience in school. But I think that as we were learning about the different acting techniques in our like drama class, um, we, we learned about method acting and that kind of resonated the most with me. But I find that method acting can be super draining. And it's funny because even as young as I was, I would get so invested in these different characters and these different workshops that we were doing. And I would find that a lot of the material was really sad and already being kind of predisposed to being a depressed person, I would just like really sink myself in whatever, whatever I was doing. And um, I realized that probably long-term that wasn't the best career path for me, but that I still wanted to do something creative. Now, uh, I had only done a year of art school and more of the charter of Philadelphia high school system. So not quite as, grand is that were you exposed to other forms of art like i went to school and i was exposed to the beginning of screen printing but then was also taught mechanical drawing but was also involved in the av club and of the stage work or were your main focus in high school initially just theater and acting yeah so actually i actually had no idea that you went had like an arts background or an art school background. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, but at CAB, when you first went in for middle school, so you would pick a major and you would audition to get into that major. And I went in as a drama major, but then they would let you pick a minor as one of your other classes. And they would let you kind of like test out all of the different classes to see what you liked the best. And there was like uh, a vocal class, a visual arts, uh, digital arts didn't come until high school. But if you were in visual arts in middle school, it was easier to get into it in high school. Um, there was communication arts, which was they kind of taught you about journalism and like setting up newspapers and yearbook and stuff like that. Uh, what else do they have? Dance. But yeah, there was there was all these different sections of art that you could learn about in our school. The only thing that sucked is once you picked your minor for that year, that was what you had to do. And if you wanted to switch it, you had to like audition to get into 
the other programs. So like I said, I always felt like even with my peers at CAB, I felt like the people that got into art were so good for how young they were that I was just too afraid to go into the class and just be shitty. (laughs) So I felt more confident with acting and singing. So I ended up doing a drama major and then a vocal minor for middle school. And then in high school, that turns into like a bigger major, which is just musical theater. Um, And they had actually in high school, they expanded, they had like a fashion program and a digital arts program. And I would hang out with a lot of those kids just to like see what they were doing. And it always fascinated me, but I felt like I was so far behind that I was kind of like holding myself back from learning it at a younger age. I was a fish out of water at that age and uh, just jumped into one high school and then went my second year to a different high school, which is where the art school came in. Oh, wow. And the height of my art school career, which was the only year I was in that school, was I was taught a dance that would be performed behind Montel Jordan when he came to our high school. Oh, my God. That's so sick. Did you do it? Yeah, and it was the weirdest thing and to this day when i tell someone like what was a dance and i'll never show anybody do you still know it of course i'm gonna get that out of you someday so you're in the beginning stages of falling into heavy music and it's because of the harmony grange in delaware and for people that are unaware of what that is the grange hall there's a couple of actually throughout the country different times that have had Hardcore shows is a rental hall and the Harmony Grange is south of Philadelphia and Delaware. And I mean, at least in the last, I'd say 15, 18 years, they've had shows there. And um, it's definitely the place where someone like Maddie would get to her first musical presentation that isn't like a giant rock concert. Do you want to uh, give a little description and kind of like, the kind of who you met and some of the first things that you encountered at the Harmony Grange? Yeah. So it's actually interesting because like talking about high school, there weren't a ton, there were some kids that would go to the Grange, but there weren't a lot of people that were into heavy music. So I feel like I had like a group of friends in high school and then an entirely different group of friends that I met from going to shows. And um, that's actually where I met Tyler and Brandon and the Grange was just, it was crazy. It was only like two miles from my house and they would have uh, shows there every weekend, sometimes Friday and Saturday, like every weekend of the month. And you'll go there one weekend, it would be like a pop show or a pop punk show. And then it would be a death metal show and then a hardcore show. So it really was like, I would just ask to go there every single time that they had a show because it was so close. It was something to do and just like get out of the house and be with friends. And it also exposed me to all different types of music. So I was able to kind of figure out what I liked and be more drawn to heavy music at a young age. Now, you had brought up being depressed, and a lot of us can relate, myself specifically. Do you feel like early on with uh, just like life and home life, do you feel the music that you were getting from the Harmony Green kind of resonated with some of that? Is that what kind of drew you to the heavier music? Yeah, it's funny because I try to think about it now. Like, what was it specifically that made heavy music so appealing to me? And I think that just the different sounds of the guitars was really interesting to me, but something even more than that, I feel like heavy music is so derived from sadness and pain. And I feel like you can hear that in the music as much as you can hear it in the vocals. So I feel like it was something that the first time I heard it, it kind of felt like I want to play music like this, like this kind of sounds like how I feel. 
as like cheesy as that might sound, it just was something that I really, really connected with. And I felt like a lot of the people that I met at those shows, I connected with a lot more than my peers at high school. Obviously not that, I think that a lot of artists, whether it be musicians or, you know, fine artists or painters or whatever, I think a lot of artistic people suffer from depression and, you know, different traumas that drive them to use art as an outlet. But I think more than anything, when I was at the Grange, I was really feeling like for the first time I was around people that understood me and that had like similar experiences and that listening to that type of music was kind of a release in itself. Just being around that environment and listening to the music, it was like such a high feeling and such a happy feeling where it was like, I'm not alone and people understand how I'm feeling. No, I would say that it's not cheesy that that is how you felt. You know, this entire culture is based in that duality of people who feel badly about whether it's the surroundings or just themselves, just predisposed to being interested in darker subjects. Right. And yet, because that is their nature, they're not going to fit in with the average, let's just use the archetypal football cheerleader type humans. So there's this loud, aggressive music, and there it is. People that understand me, people that aren't so quick to judge me, I like this. Okay, so now I'm juxtaposed between being really happy to have a place for my emotions to go because they're dark. So I'm both happy, and then the music around us is aggressive, angry, sad, fucked up, and people are fucked up, and people are doing crazy shit in the mosh pit. And I think the dichotomy between the two things often throw the average onlooker who's not immersed in our culture off. But what's more interesting is because of you. And I can say that I know that you're sitting in a completely hot pink room (laughs) and you have the most soft emotional side to you, but you are absolutely into the more heavier, darker things that it's a perfect place for you to be. And it's cool that you found it that way. So you're in high school and you know Tyler, Tyler who would play drums in Agitator, fill in for any amount of bands that were around the area and go on tour for weeks at a time, etc. And you met Brandon through high school. For those listening, Brandon and Maddie met when Maddie is 15. They're happily married and the powerhouse inside of you're the knife and the candy corpse only two employees. So it's kind of cool that this is the time and place where you start meeting these pivotal people that will make your entire life what it is. And I think a lot of people listening can resonate with those first couple people that you relate to from our music scene, becoming the very important people in this stage in our lives. So walk me through what you're doing in high school, how does it get you towards college? And then like, what kind of shows you're up to at that time? So it's funny that you say like the first few people you meet, they kind of do become your friends for life. It's funny. I actually, I like the, the people that I went to high school with and I had a good experience in school. And I think because it was an art school, there weren't, we didn't have those like typical tropes, like the cliques where it was like jocks and like weird kids or art kids. Cause everyone was a weird art kid. So like, 
we didn't really have that situation, but I realized as I got older, like I really don't talk to anyone that I went to high school or middle school with anymore, but I'm still the people that I met when I was in middle school and like early high school at the Grange are still like some of the best friends that I have. Um, and I met Tyler there when I was 14. And then, like you said, Brandon and I met through mutual friends. I think we talked on MySpace first and then he came up and we hung out there when we were like 15. Um, but yeah, just getting through, you were saying getting through like high school to college. I think that through high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do long-term. And I was really kind of racking my brain because as I was finding that being an actress wasn't what my like long-term goal was going to be, I was really lost on what I should be doing and what should be my career path. And I think you know, I had a lot of artists in my family, but I also had, you know, my grandfather who is an inventor and he, he worked with uh, golf clubs and golf club chefs. And actually the way that they make it now is something that he invented. So I, I thought that I, I needed to find some sort of like scientific or mathematical field or that I wouldn't really like make him proud. And uh, my grandfather was like a father to me. So I was really trying to figure out what could I do in college? That would be something that he would be proud of rather than looking to what is something that I would be happy as a career path? And I, I started college as a dietetics major. So I went in and I was like learning about nutrition and stuff. And then uh, I, I've always been more interested in like anatomy and that side of things. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll be a physical therapist. I switched my major again. And then I remember I went to, I went to my grandparents' house in Pennsylvania and I was just like miserable and super lost. Like I was doing well in school, but I was just... I couldn't see myself doing what I was doing for my whole life. And I thought, is it a waste because I'm good at it? Or am I going to do something that makes me miserable because I think it'll make someone else happy? And I think that I was really guilty of that when I was younger, just like looking for what made other people happy instead of what made myself happy. And my grandfather was like, you know, you're never going to be happy working for someone else and doing something you don't love. Like you have to, whatever you do, be proud of what you do and you know, that's what you need to go after. So he was like, if you, he, he always gave me like a, a kind of like analogy that he was like, if you want to be a grave digger, be the very best grave digger that you can be. Or if you want to be a veterinarian, be the very best veterinarian that can, you can be. Or if you want to, you know, collect trash, like whatever you do, be passionate about it and be proud of what you do and don't care what anyone else has to say. So it was like, from there, I was like, well, fuck, it's like all this time I thought that I'd be disappointing him. And I was probably disappointing him more that I was not following what was my true path. So after that, I switched to uh, graphic design at University of Delaware. And then I did that for a couple of years. And then I switched over to doing graphic design and web design. And that's when I like really, really fell in love with web design and coding. That in itself is just amazing how he could be so impactful. and. One of the things that I think that you stuck on that is important to understand is high school is not the time for someone to make a giant several, potentially even $100,000 worth of school debt to decide on a life path. But it seems right. to be that's what so many people get forced into doing. And it was good that you were given the opportunity to try something and then go down a different path. And so many people early on just say, well, this is what's going to make people happy. And it really isn't. And then, you know, obviously we have the whole school debt stuff. So I'm glad that you had someone in your life that understood you and could guide you to something that is far more fortuitous than dietetics would have been. Right. Now, I think it, 
Oh, go ahead. I went to, you had touched on, just slightly glossed over your family also being artists. What kind of art were people in your family creating? So my mom is actually uh, really, really talented at calligraphy and painting. And then my aunt is a painter and a sculptor. And she does a lot of sculpting with like clay and metal and wood. But my grandparents' house, a lot of the, you know, the big paintings in their house, they would have different fine artists, but then a lot of them were from my aunt. And I didn't know it until I got older and realized that it was her signature. So it's funny because I feel like they were always really, really skilled and artistic. And if you ask my mom now, my mom's like, oh, I can't paint, but she's a great painter and she's really great at calligraphy. Man, I mean... Could you ask for a better <laughs> background for what would later <laughs> come up? So you're not really creating art and you're just putzing around, just messing around, but you're not really, you don't even have gear yet for uh year of the knife. Is that correct? At this yeah. Point? Yeah. I had a, I had an electric guitar, but I, I didn't have a bass and I didn't I actually learn bass for year of the knife. I mean, again, that's just a Maddie in you to just say, fuck it. I'm going to do this. (laughs) So we're going to do the chicken and the egg, which part comes first. Does the job where you get into park and rec or does the beginning of you doing year of the night, which one comes first in your life? Oh, that's hard to think about. I think so. I, I started with Delaware state parks, like right after I graduated college and I went in as the webmaster. So I was redesigning their website and, and keeping up their website while I was redesigning a new one. I want to say that Year of the Knife started actually around the same time. But it was when I still had a, a smaller position at Delaware State Parks before I went on to be marketing director. Okay. So Year of the Knife had initially started with a little bit of a different lineup. And you had said that they didn't have a bass player and you were learning it just to play their first show. Walk us through that. Yeah. So you're the knife actually before that first show, Brandon had had like a bunch of different songs and he had worked with a bunch of different of our friends trying to get a band off the ground. And then finally when they were ready to play the first show and that show was in Maryland with, I think malice at the palace and Jesus peace. We're both on the first show. I think Malice the Palace headlined. And uh, yeah, so they we had like a friend that was playing bass. And I was just, I think we had band practice at our house. Oh, no, this was before our house. We had band practice at uh, Brandon's mom's house. And I was seeing that the bassist like really didn't know the songs. But as I was watching them play it, I like real, I learned how to play it. And I knew like how to play the songs. So I remember right before their first show, he was like, oh, well, you can just like turn my head down. Uh that way, like, nobody will hear if I mess up. And then everyone was like, oh, that's going to suck. Like, we don't want to fuck up our first show. And Brandon was kind of venting to me about it. And I was like, well, why don't I just fill in for the first show? Because I do know how to play the songs, and you can run them with me, like, when we're at home. And he was like, oh, yeah, let me see if everybody's cool with that. And then, so when I first went into the first show, it was, like, under the pretense that I would just fill in for the first show. But then after we played it, everybody was like, do you just want to be in the band? I was like, fuck yeah, I want to be in the band. Now... You're at what, 23 or 24 at this point? I'm so bad with time. I think 22 or 23. Now, obviously you had found hardcore and the green shows earlier. What stopped you from joining a band previously to this? 
as much as I hate to say it, I feel like when I would try to start bands with people, they would kind of, no one, no one would outright say, no, I don't want to start a band with you. Everyone would be like, oh yeah, for sure. And then if I would follow up, it was kind of like it never went anywhere. And I, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think it was kind of because I hadn't been in other bands and because I was a girl. Like, cause there were guys that were not very good musicians and it was their first band. They were pretty shitty and people would tend to give them a chance just based on who they were friends with. But I felt like it was kind of at the time of when I was in middle school and high school, you didn't really see girls playing in heavy music. And um, I was tr- I'm trying to remember the first time that I saw, I think the first time that I saw a girl actually in person playing heavier music was the girl that played keyboards for Winds of Plague. And I don't, even though I knew that there were like, like Walls of Jericho, I knew that there were other bands that had girls in them. Like I never saw them in person. I would see bands every weekend. I wouldn't see girls. So it was one of those things that just wasn't the way it is now where it's not this big weird thing. Well, that is not the first time someone has been discriminated for by being a woman. And it's a shame because, you know, here you are, you already know the piano, you artistic and creative and, it's good that you jumped in when you did, but a bum out that it took you so long before you started. Right. So you're the knife starts off. You guys are playing shows. Things are working well. And then your first singer departs and were a couple, whether it was like before the announce that this is hardcore, or maybe you guys even announced and Tyler was going to be the, either the fill in drum or the fill in singer from drummer. And then you're going to find someone or you're worried about not even playing. And I just want you to kind of like give us the, uh, like what was going through the band's mind? What were you guys thinking about having Tyler switch over? Just run me through all that. Oh my God. That was so stressful. And it was one of those things, you know, I, we'd all been going to this as hardcore before we were even friends with you. So it's one of those things that we always dreamed like, Oh, someday it would be cool to be in a band and play this as hardcore. And I think that when all of that was up in the air, we didn't want our first set to like not be the coolest thing for us or not. We wanted it to feel like this big milestone. We didn't want it to be an afterthought or something thrown together last minute. So we were all really scrambling and Tyler, Tyler's an amazing vocalist, but you know, our whole friendship, I'd known him as this like crazy drummer that people always were like really blown away by Tyler as a drummer. So I was trying to picture who could fill his shoes and, I really hadn't seen Tyler as a vocalist aside from like singing along at shows and then um, doing Uzi kids. And I didn't know like what kind of vocals he was going to do. And we were all just trying to figure it out. And that's actually Andy's first show with us. Andy who jumps for us now was that this is hardcore. And that was kind of like the birth of the line, like not the full lineup that we have now, but it was the birth of like this direction for the band and like the next like actual step for us. And after we, um, after we finished the set, it went off super well. We were all really, really excited. I remember talking to Jamie from Code Orange and he was like, Tyler's got to be your singer. And I was like, oh, I don't know, Jamie, like Tyler's such a crazy drummer. Cause we were talking about maybe just that set Tyler would sing and then he would go back to drums and we would find a singer. But after that set, everyone was like, Tyler's got to be your singer. Like that was so cool. And everybody was super into it. And I just remember talking to um, Jamie about it and being really excited because we've all been friends with them for a while, but that was when Code Orange was really starting to take off and having them, you know, having his input on it and having him say that he thought that the set was great and that Tyler was a really good fit. I think that also like 
and then you, you know, same thing with you, you were pushing us and saying like, this is the way that you should do it. I think that kind of reaffirmed what we were doing and made us excited for the next chapter and not feel so lost on what we were doing. One of the things that gives me a lot of personal joy is watching people like Tyler and yourself and Brandon come up and they come to shows, support hardcore, and then they get excited about, dude, one day we're going to play. And so I'm always trying to make sure that when we have a band that's local to us and a part of our local scene play, that it's the best possible scenario. And with Year of the Knife, especially because you had already been playing shows and the name was starting to get out there, I definitely didn't want to see you guys back down or say, no, you know what, let's wait. We'll make it up, you know, and it was a lightning in a bottle scenario. And I definitely think it kicked off a lot of really cool things for you. Yeah, it definitely did. And I I am really happy that that, I mean, you know, that, that changed the whole course of our band and what we were doing. And I am really glad that we ended up, you know, just going for it and doing it that weekend rather than saying, never mind, we'll just figure it out later. Because I think that nervous energy pushed the set even further to have like more energy and have more fun with it. Well, like everything that we try to do, there's always a nervous stick your toe in the tip of the water to check the temperature. And sometimes you're just going to jump all the way in. And after that set, I had a chance to talk to you about what you guys were going to do. And I was really impressed with your ability to organize and network and get the band rolling. And I just wanted you to kind of walk through and kind of like a tutorial for some of these newer bands being like, we need a booking agent, even though we haven't been around for a year, like explain to everybody the kind of work that you guys put in to kind of get your guys name out there with people. Yeah, I think I think a lot of younger bands make the mistake and it maybe is just because they don't have like I think that we were very fortunate because if I had questions or if I was like, what do we do next or how do we do a weekend or how do we plan something? I was lucky to be able to ask you about it and, you know, have experience from someone that both books and has toured. But I think a lot of younger bands make the mistake now of they want to get out and tour and they want to go out with a bunch of their friends and like before they've really, you know, put in the work locally or done weekends and stuff like that they try to do these like four band bills where it's like everyone's kind of at the same level and uh, you know, they don't have a lot of fun on the tour or the tour doesn't have like a ton of draw. And I think it's more important to, you know, really build yourself locally. And then if you can try to do like weekend runs and week runs before you just jump in or before you pay somebody else to do it when you can do it yourself. I mean, when you're a smaller band, you don't need to have a booking agent that takes a cut when they're just going to put you out on shit to play to 20 people. And then you have to pay, you know, pay them 10% of whatever your guarantee was. You should really try to network and talk to your older friends and talk to your friends and bands that could potentially get you on a show or tell them, Hey, like we want to do four days around this and maybe take one band. Don't take three bands and then, you know, see where it goes. For me. And you've heard this lecture. So it's, it is because we're speaking, preaching a choir, but for people listening, I've always viewed bands and growth as unless you are Scott Vogel or someone who has multiple established bands where there already is a name connected, the best way to build a band is locally and then regionally and not try to shoot for the moon and do the big 30 day tour. And like you pointed out, 
if you have three small bands that are barely known in their own 12 circle, 12 hour circle around them, they're not going to find as many people outside just yet, regardless of how many people like stuff on the internet. And we'll get to that in a second. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, you're, you're cutting a small amount of money that a promoter can afford to pay between three or four people. You're selling less merch. It's always beneficial and smarter logistically to go out with one band besides your band or just go out on your own right. and the opportunity to jump on shows. And then you have more of a better opportunity with a promoter saying, yeah, I'll add you to this show. And I know you've seen some absolute benefits from that. What do you feel about the way that Year of the Knife kind of started getting established? Do you think that it was timing or do you think it was timing and planning? I think timing and planning. And it's funny that you say it. So it's like sometimes you go out by yourself and that's how you meet new people and you make way more connections. And I think everyone is kind of like stuck behind their phones sometimes and thinks that they have to do everything online. But the people that you meet in person and like the friendships that you make from playing different shows and going different places, even if it's by yourself or just with one other band, I feel like that helps your band to grow and to meet new people. And like you said, like if you need a show somewhere, that's how you build up those contacts or it's like you have a band, a perfect example, like uh, I think Brandon and Brian from Knock Loose were like talking and they end was on a tour with them and then ended up not being able to come from Canada because there was like some issue with their papers. And since we'd like played with them before and they talked, Brian asked if we would do the weekend with them. And that was kind of like one of those things where we'd done a couple weekends and I think we'd played LDB or we'd like gone down to the Midwest and then we were able to do that weekend tour with them. That eventually led to doing that, our first full US tour with them. So it really is just, you know, it is a lot of planning, but it is a lot of like right time, right place. But you can put yourself in the right time, right place if you're actually going out there and doing like strategic work rather than hoping that you'll just blow up on the internet. That's the funniest thing is when people are like, how do you become a big band? Like, how do you just get hype? And it's like, hype isn't the same thing as like being successful. And obviously, like, I'm not saying like, you're the knife is like a huge band or like super, super successful. But I'm saying like, if you go out and you put the work in, that's so much different than like having internet buzz or being able to sell merch. Like, it's really important to build up your local scene and to push up other bands in your local scene and to like go out and put the legwork in, even if it is just for weekends, even if it is just for a week before just trying to, you know, blow up for the sake of blowing up. For anybody who listened to the podcast the week before this one, when I spoke to Chris Spear of Dysphoria, Madison had just underlined the foundation and the hustle that, Chris Spear and Dysphoria put on. And I couldn't agree more. One of the things that you touched on when we talk about hype and internet is that people associate a bunch of humans discussing one band as this band is so huge. Oh my God, this band's hype. And then the opposite would be fuck that band. All they are is hype. No one, blah, blah, blah. And really what it comes down to from a promoter aspect is that, you know, yes, there are bands because of their pop that comes from the internet will have people come out and see them. But if they suck, it's a one-time gimmick. And they're like, all right, I've seen that show, uh, Dog and Pony show, and it is what it is. And it is hard work, and it is 
a lot of things that are done in the foundation of the band. You know, if you're writing the same thing that everybody else is and you're not trying to put your own spin on it, or you're hoping that if you just retweet and like and ball wash people on social (laughs) media, that you're going to rise, it's going to be a hard knock life for you. It, It truly comes down to how much you're out there hustling and what you brought up is important. You know, back in the earlier stages of promoting, I found that a band would want to stay at your house. The band would build a relationship and want to come back. And these two and three band packages with these smaller bands, they are very much insulated to the tour package or whoever the one or two important people in that area are. And they don't make the connection with the other local bands and they don't make the connections that may help them further down the line. And again, again, to reference the episode from last week, you know, yeah, Chris Beer and his hustle is the foundation for a lot of what I learned, but everything on that story that we talked about is the foundation that would make this as hardcore possible. And it's like, oh, some 19-year-old kid leaves Philadelphia and seven years later starts this fest. These are the things that happen when you aren't on your phone, hiding in a van, or trying to play which girl to hook up with this week, but you're actually (laughs) engaging with the world and making these lasting relationships. So to continue forward and to touch back on regular Madison life, at this stage, you're also a state employee. So you can't do the 30 day tour. And I want you to kind of talk to me about what you were doing with the state and kind of how it was driving your career. Right. So, and that, that comes a lot into what you were saying, like, is it timing or planning? A lot of it had to be planning because uh, I think at this point I was full-time for the state and I went from being a part-time webmaster to being the marketing director for Delaware State Parks. So it was like, I had a full-time job in state government. I couldn't really just like go wherever we wanted, whenever we wanted, but I could plan out. I could strategically plan, okay, we'll take, you know, a four-day weekend here, or like I'll save up vacation and then take up a week here and do different things like that. And uh, at the same time that I was doing that, I also had Candy Corpse in like the very early stages of of what it was when it was just like a few pins. Um, so I, I was kind of always trying to figure out different side hustles and different things to do that I could eventually work towards being my own boss. But I was still trying to kind of figure out what that would what that would translate to and what that would look like. And just kind of building up different skills in the meantime between design and web and marketing that could help me be successful with Candy Corpse. And also, honestly, that stuff helps you be successful from a music standpoint too. Not that it's like exactly like a business, but as far as networking and like learning how to promote yourself and like promote other people and like help your friends out too. I think that's a big part of it. Now with Candy Corpse, I need to understand the origin of like the first couple things that you started selling, but also what was the origin for the idea that would craft your brand? So I think honestly, I I was always trying to find like some sort of like side way to make money on top of working full time. Like even when I was in school and my friend Brooke, that's also from Delaware, she did um, or she does the passes for this is hardcore and I think it was like 2013. I think that was the year that I met you. 
and she asked for help with the passes and she kind of taught me how to make tour passes and she had a sticker machine. And from there, I asked her if I could kind of like rent out her sticker machine or like pay her for the materials to do orders for bands. So I would email every single band on, you know, I would like look through the list and then I would get their contacts and email every single one of them asking if they wanted like a, this is hardcore sticker deal. And then I would just deliver it to them at the fest. So it was kind of like that start of networking and working with people that I realized that I wanted to do something like that, like some sort of product like that. And, uh, I did realize though that like stickers and buttons, they're a lot of work and they're very small. Like you can't sell a sticker for more than like three or $5. And even if you're like making them and they're not super expensive to make, I realized that was, there was a big gap between that and being like an apparel brand. And I was kind of curious, like, how do I get from where I am now to growing what I'm doing into being like a full established, like apparel and like homewares brand. And uh, I think it was actually, yeah, I was talking to Max Morton and we were like at the shop Shogun table and I saw that he had different like enamel pins on the table. And I was like, damn, that would be so cool. Cause I, I did like art or stickers in my art, but I hadn't done anything outside of that. And I was kind of afraid to jump into the investment of doing t-shirts. But uh, Max told me like stickers weren't too expensive and or not stickers, uh, pins weren't too expensive and that he would like help me out and get a contact to get started up with that. So that's actually where I started my first three pins from Candy Corp. So it is crazy that hardcore is what, you know, gave me the foundation to start this business. Well, I feel like you had quite a few foundation points. I mean, from the design aspect, the artistic and creative side, and then from just being able to physically social network within the scene to give you resources, which is a huge other thing that people have to understand is having conversations with people that aren't in your direct circle can also lead to new avenues for things to work on. And I, something you touched on, and it just like came to me as we were saying this is like Madison is probably one of the most, I won't say frugal, but just so <laughs> goddamn good with money. And it's constantly on, like you could have been an accountant. That's how sharp you are with it. So I'm not surprised that as you're, you know, in your first job post-college, and you're in your career that you're trying to find money to make things happen for the, for the house. But what do you think drove you to be so focused and not, I won't say controlling, but observant and, um, you know, I guess that proficient in managing money. I think, I think anybody that's ever had a point in their life when they were poor or if they grew up poor, or if they were poor, like at any point, I think you kind of fight, everything in your power to never get back there. So it's like, when you say frugal, I was laughing because I think sometimes I still, I kind of over obsess of like, I want to always have a security blanket. Like I never want to be in a position where if for some reason we didn't have any sales for a couple months that we would be fucked. So I'm always trying to plan ahead and put money away and, you know, be responsible with money and think about kind of the next step for things so that, we can always live comfortably and so that I can grow my business without stress. Um, and it's funny, I, I actually haven't talked to anyone about this, but when coronavirus first started, I or actually, we'll take it back. So it was like Thanksgiving of 2019. I'm- yes, 2019. So Thanksgiving 2019, I did my first launch of purses and it was the first time I ever did them. And I was really, really nervous about if they would go over well, cause I hadn't done anything that was like that high price before. And 
so I priced them like way under what I should have priced them at because I was just worried that no one would care, no one would buy them, or like I would just sit with them forever. So I put them up and they sold out in seven hours. And I was like, holy shit, that was the craziest thing. Like I got to order more of these. Like this is a huge step for the business. I can do, you know, I can confidently move into more expensive runs of things and not be so scared that it's going to cause my business to fail or cause us. Because at this point, that that's what I'm doing full time is Candy Corp. So it's like if this goes you're under, walking, you're walking us way further. <laughs> oh, I'm walking you down. <laughs> well, you're walking. You're like you like jump towards so much further. But uh, get to your point, Madison. <laughs> oh, my my point is so when you say like planning frugal with money, so I'm just saying like this this all happened. It was like a successful thing. I went to order more purses, and they said that uh, my factory is closed because it was like around Christmas time, and it would take a little bit past Christmas to when it would be done. So I was like, all right. And then it was like overseas coronavirus hit. And then over here it hit. So it was like this four month period where I basically was not getting any new product and was just relying on like what we'd done. And I actually had to like borrow from my own savings to (laughs) keep candy corpse up. And I was just freaking the fuck out because it's like the pandemic was happening. I didn't know if I was going to have to get another job or whatever. Um, and it ended, I'll, down the line, I'll tell you, it ended up working out. But it's one of those things where it's like, if I hadn't planned that way, and if I hadn't been so obsessive over having money saved, like that could have been a really shit situation for us as homeowners. Because it's oh. like, I put so much into the business working and so much into believing that, you know, we could do it. That could have been really bad if I hadn't planned so strategically on it. There's no question that you dominate in so many aspects in the creative side and in the functional logistics of things. And so I think you're one of the few people I know, some people take one path and, and don't do so well in the other, but you manage to gracefully balance out handling the responsibilities of dealing with the next steps for year of the knife, working on your business at that time, which was not a full-time engagement while still having a park and rec job. And all this just lends to your testament of this, like never stop, you know, don't take good as good enough. And so where does the park and rec job start adding to what you were already doing with the beginning of Candy Corpse? So I think it was probably early 2016 candy corp or not early 2016 uh early late 2017 to early 2018 um candy corpse was really starting to pick up and i was realizing that i was working like 40 to 50 weeks at parks and then i would come home and work like 20 to 30 hours on candy corpse and i was just working so much all the time it was like all i thought about and it was kind of like all consuming that i wanted both things to be super successful And I remember Brandon like kind of sat me down and was just like, I feel like you're working yourself to death and you have to decide like which one you want to do. And he was like, I know it's hard because it's like when you start a small business, everybody's telling you like, don't put your, all your eggs in that basket. And you know, everyone in my family was like, don't leave your government job. That's such a stupid idea. So I was really like torn on what to do because I was passionate about candy corpse, but I didn't want to leave the security of having a state government job. Um, And I think I totally got lost on what, what the question exactly was. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> you you were outlining it pretty well, and maybe I can help you get to it. Um, you had started 
in one facet of the job. And then later you move to a separate job, which kind of landed skills to advanced candy corps is more or less what I was getting at. Right. Yeah. So, and that is one thing that was cool. So I had these skills in graphic design and advertising design from college. And I had these skills in web design from college. And then once I went to parks and um, learned more and more about marketing and social media, because the social media girl there left and then I took over her responsibilities because the state didn't fill the position. So it was like I was able to learn all these different things from working in parks and then going to design conferences and marketing conferences as the marketing director that I picked up all these different skills for the business that was like able to help it be more successful and like just always keep me thinking about like what new things can I learn so that I don't have to necessarily like pay someone else to do this for me, but so that I can just go out and do it myself. Now, obviously this is hardcore podcast and most people who are listening may know or potentially know you're the knife and maybe have done some Googling to know who the hell candy corpses, <laughs> but for everyone who has not clicked on the Instagram or the social medias, give me a short rundown of if you had to say what candy corpses art wise and like what inspired you to make that kind of stuff. So that way people listening to what the fuck is this have a better understanding of what we're talking about. Yeah, of course. So Candy Corpse is an apparel and accessories brand. And the things that I am inspired by, a lot of it is uh, like traditional tattooing and stuff that I grew up seeing being in hardcore. But then it's also a lot of like anime, uh, Japanese street style and like Harajuku stuff. And it's very like combining kind of cutesy and like more feminine things with a lot of things are still rooted in hardcore. I'll do like collabs with different bands in hardcore um, for like t-shirts and apparel and stuff like that. So it's kind of blending my two worlds. Like you said, there's always kind of the two different sides or two different things that I was brought up with. And it's kind of just blending that into a very cute and fun brand. I tell someone who is like, yo, what's that about? I'm like, think like a hot pink <laughs> with like blood on it. <laughs> it's like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Know, like I did like uh, a, a Halloween series where it was like Freddy Krueger's glove, but it's got a bow on it or like Jason's machete, but it's got like a bow and like dripping blood, like just different things like that. Or like I do like a cute weapon series. Cause I just thought that would be like a fun, like funny thing to do where it's like a revolver or a Bowie knife, but they're like pink and purple. <laughs> now, obviously it's not hard to see that, um, anime and Japanese street culture lens in where do you think you first got uh, introduced to uh, manga and that Eastern influence in the art? Oh, that's actually easy. So my grandfather, I talked about this a bit earlier, but he was uh, a businessman and inventor in the golf industry. So he would spend golfing is huge in Japan, or at least it was when I was younger. And he would spend like several months a year going on business trips to Japan and, you know, he would always bring me back different things from Japan when he went. And I remember he brought me like Pokemon cards before, like when they were still in Japanese and before it was like starting to get really popular here. And he would bring me like different like stuffed animals. Um, and he brought back Spirited Away was like one of the first movies that I saw that was like uh, anime style movie. And I just totally fell in love with it. Like to this day, that's my favorite movie. So once again, it's kind of my grandfather that sparked my interest. I got to, I never got to go to Japan with him, but um, his business partners came over 
And a lot of like the different toys and things that they would bring, I just thought it was so neat because they were so different from American toys and American action figures. So it was just kind of sparked my interest at a young age to want to learn more about the culture and the different designs and character designs that they did. Was it something that was any bit available in the completely diverse and modern Delaware? (laughs) Complete. Oh, come on now. So like I said, Pokemon like that, I think shortly after he brought me back cards from Japan because his business partners were like, this is the biggest thing here. It actually did come over to America. And I thought it was funny because it really bothered me that the cards didn't match up. My OCD was like strong, even as a child, the Japanese cards have kind of like a, they're like a darker Navy blue and they have kind of like a whirly cloud water thing on the back. But then the American cards is more just like a gradient. And that always really irked me. But, um, yeah, I think that that he – I'm sorry, I totally lost my point of thought again because you were talking about Delaware. No, oh, that's what it is. So Delaware, there weren't a ton of – like there wasn't like a, a manga shop or an anime shop necessarily. When Borders Books used to still be open, they had a manga section, and my mom would buy me all the Sailor Moon books because I became obsessed with Sailor Moon. But all of this stuff started from the different like magazines and action figures and toys that my grandfather would bring me. So it was like anything that looked like that, I just instantly wanted to get it. What uh, from, you said, traditional American tattooing, where did you get uh, influence from that? It's funny because I don't have any tattoos. but Which is why I brought it up. I know. But I've, I've always been super fascinated by tattoos. And a lot of people in my family have tattoos. And then obviously a lot of people at shows um, have tattoos so I think it was one of those things I just really liked the line work of it. And I think you can see that in a lot of like my pins and different, the way that I draw is a lot of times how, like it would translate very well to tattooing. Like I've worked on flash sheets with friends because it's very easy to translate my drawings to tattoos. Um, and I think that it was just seeing that art style. I liked that it had like a bold outline around it that separated the different colors. And obviously that holds up the best over time on a tattoo on someone's skin, but that was just something that kind of influenced my art and the way that it looked, I thought was really interesting. Now, I remember from our personal conversations at a certain point, you were dealing with the insane workload, which was, you know, you mentioned it 50 hours from parks and God only knows how many hours after day job, just working on candy corps while still playing shows in year of the knife and writing and just trying to be a normal human, where did the introduction to the mentor come into play? And can you give us that whole story? Yeah. So with candy corpse, it was getting to the point where it was becoming a full-time job, but I was too afraid to take the jump. And I talked to, it was more connections and people that I met when I was working at parks. Like I talked to, uh, one person that was working on the rebrand for parks. Like I talked to them about like establishing a brand and like, you know, name recognition and things like that, that you needed to, to be well-established. And then I also talked to, it was Brandon's boss at the time, but he, cause Brandon also worked for parks in a different section. Um, But he, he was really talking to me about, you know, the amount of money that you want to have saved up as a cushion, the different things that you want to do to like really prepare yourself so that you're not set up for failure but I think that I think that I got to a point where it was like I had these things in place and I was just too scared to fail. And I was too scared of everyone saying this is a dumb idea. I didn't want them to be right and to 
you know, lose a really stable job where I actually had health insurance, which, you know, so many people do not have. I didn't want to fuck that up doing something that was following my dream, but it was really, I think, Brandon that pushed me. Like I was saying earlier, when we had that conversation, he was just like, you're running yourself ragged. Like, I think you should decide which one of these things you want to do. And he was like, I'm going to support you either way. If you, he was like, if you believe in Candy Corpse, like, I think you should quit your job and go for it. And he was like, I've never seen you like not go after something and not get it. But he was like, but if you decide that you want to stay at parks, I think you need to stop doing this because it's, it's just too, too much that you're doing. Now, where did you have um, that moment where I'm going to do it? I'm going to quit my day job. And how did that transpire? This is like the weirdest stars aligned thing ever. But I was just, it was after that conversation, I was really, really thinking about it. And I finally was just like, I'm not sure what the moment was specifically. Like, I think I was just to myself. I was like, the only thing holding me back from doing it is me. Like, it's not that I have no plan. It's not that I'm not like financially ready to try to do it. It's just me. Like the fear is what's holding me back from actually going out and trying to accomplish it and trying to follow my dreams. So I put in my uh, two weeks notice at parks. And then my boss asked if I could do a four weeks notice because he wanted to help me train someone else and finish up a few projects. And, you know, he, he was really bummed out about it, but he was like, all right, well, this is what we'll do. And then it was funny because I actually had to go back it was like either three days after that or four days after that, Isaac called us and asked us if we, if Year of the Knife was available to do the full U.S. tour with them. That was in like March of 2018. And, uh, you know, if I, if I had still kept my job, a lot of people think that I quit my job to go on tour, but it's funny because I literally was like, all right, I'm going to do Candy Corps. Like, this is what I'm setting out to do. And I put in my notice right before that. And I actually ended up having to cut it to like a two and a half weeks notice. Cause that's how soon the tour was leaving. See again, timing, timing is everything and the luck of the draw. Yeah. Now getting into that pretty quickly. Um, knock loose is a band from Louisville, Kentucky for some of the older folks. And for the rest of the younger folks, everyone should know by now who they are. And they had pretty much had done mostly tours that weren't really, I would say, hardcore focused. But this one was the big show. This was Knock Loose, Terror, Jesus Peace. And they had an opener. And that opener was deemed no longer valid or going to play shows. And you're the knife walks in gets on the opening bill of what would be a what 35 or 40 date tour mm. in the biggest rooms that you guys have played in some places and your first legitimate dealing with some of the worst aspects of touring music such as merch cuts etc <laughs> so walk me through the differences between being out with like one or two bands for a weekend and then what you guys were going through on that tour it was it was crazy. I still say that that tour was one of my favorite tours that we've ever done, even years later. But it really was like a whole different world. Like, you know, you're used to going out on tour and the show's at six. So you like roll up at five or five thirty and, uh, you know, you're just like hanging out with friends and all that shit. But this was like actually a professional level tour. Like you would go out and load and will be at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. And, uh, you know, a lot of times since we were opening, like we had to do sound check. Like this is all the shit that like. 
I'd seen it for this is hardcore because obviously it's like a, a big production. You see like sound checking and setting up and loading in, but all the tours that we'd done before that were so just like DIY and come right before and uh, hope the sound was good. Like this was our first time, our first like real taste of a professional level and merch cuts, all the things that you uh, have to learn to navigate <laughs> around that. Why don't uh, you, uh, why don't you give some tutorial to some of these younger bands that, are just dying to be out there in the big world, but don't know some of the bullshit. You want me to give them a guide to how to skip out on merch cuts? Is Absolutely. That Absolutely. Right. <laughs> give, me the, give me the how to fuck the house cut. So uh, if you have a cool, like if the tour manager is cool, you can, and you're an opening band, you can talk to them about like saying that you have an agreement that the opening band doesn't have to pay a merch cut. And we were lucky. Uh, Colin was Colin Feeney was the tour manager for that tour, and he helped out a lot with that. Like a lot of shows, they would not even come up to us. Um, if you aren't that lucky, and the tour manager doesn't feel like talking to them about that, or just doesn't care because you're not paying them, uh, you can. First off, if you are a girl, they're going to assume some stupid shit about you anyway. So half the time, I pretend that I can't count, and people just go with that. Or I'll say, I don't know. I think we sold like two shirts, and they're like, Oh, okay, sweetie, you don't have to give us any money. That's a good one. Uh, I don't know what to tell you if you're not a girl on that one. Go get a girl to do your merch. Uh, there are, oh, you can hit them with a, a W9. So this is something that Greg Daly taught me. Greg Daly works for this is hardcore and he does tour managing for like a lot of like big death metal bands. But if you say like, I'll give you a merch cut, but you need to give me like a tax receipt that you're taking this money from me. Usually the venue will not do that because they're like, I don't want, like, they just want to take cash from you and not record it. They don't want to have to deal with the struggle or the headache of having a W9. And I would recommend that even if you are a bigger band, because it is a tax write-off for you, you can expense it. And they'll probably get pissed off and say they don't want to do it anyway and just let you go. Um, Another good one is saying you'll be right back and then loading out and leaving, but make sure you get paid first before you do that. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's many, many skilled, skilled ways to get around it. That's what I like. By rook or crook, fuck the house cut. <laughs> the house cut, it's fucking robbery, so you don't need to feel bad about not paying somebody for, like, the way that you look at it, they don't pay shit for your merch. Also, why are they taking a cut when they give you a guarantee? So it's like they're giving you money to play, and then they're asking you for a percentage of the money on shit that you've sold. So like, It literally makes no sense. What, I, what I've come to understand about the, the merch cut and the house cut is just that it is a bigger business idea that infected hardcore when hardcore felt to establish itself within larger venues in bigger markets. And so for people listening who don't know what we're talking about, a band gets paid by a guarantee when they're on a tour package. X amount of shows, you're getting paid this amount of money. Occasionally, if there's a 30-day tour, there might be five or six shows where there might be door deals or something in smaller locations or with different promoters. But each band is given a percentage of sales from the merchandise that have to go back to the club. And it is only in very big clubs for the most part. And it's one of the biggest pains in the asses. And there is a lot to be said about it just being like a pushback and I've never done it with bands. It was one of the things that as we moved into the electric factory with our festival, 
we would never take a cut from a band's merch when we just want them to sell money, uh, sell as much shirts, make as much money, and just continue to grow. All right, going forward, um, one of the things that you brought up, which needs to be said real quick, is that when you're on a big tour like this, you have to be there on time. And a lot of younger bands kind of get away with on the smaller three band packages or four band packages showing up after doors and, you know, Oh, we'll load our merch. But when you're on someone else's production and you're on someone's time and you have to be there for load in, cause you have to sound check and be first, just do your fucking job. Right. You want to get to the point where you're cool and everyone knows your name. It comes from showing up three hours early, not 45 minutes before doors. Right. I think it's also, it's just a certain level of respect. So uh, on some hands, I am grateful that that was like our first tour out because it conditioned us to like, we get there on time. Like there's no like, oh, it's cool if we're just like late this day or anything like that. Like it was just like, you know, we're grateful that we have this opportunity to tour. They want us to be there at this time. That's when you show up because if you think about it, it's like if they're relying on us for load in or like where load in or sound check and that that's something that they're waiting on you for. You don't want to be disrespectful to somebody that's like giving you a shot to open up their tour. No, and that's that's the other huge aspect of it is everybody wants to be on the tour, but there is a respect that comes from being on the tour. And it and it's to the opening bands that are after you and to the headliner and their staff to make sure that they get on stage at the right time. So did you take any candy corpse merch out or were you just like promoting candy corpse? Okay. So go through how the reception was at a uh, tour like this. Yeah. So for, it's actually funny for a long time with candy corpse, I didn't talk about being in year of the knife and I didn't talk about candy corpse from uh year of the knife or like, I was just kind of thought that it would be a weird world collide or like somebody wouldn't take the band as serious or me as serious seeing what my shop looked like. And then I kind of got to a point of like, I don't fucking care because this is what I'm doing and I think it's cool. And how cool would it to be able to basically essentially do pop-up shops when you're on tour? It's like all these places that I couldn't, like I couldn't go out on a tour with Candy Corpse and do pop-up shops at every one of these. But if I can bring it along with us on tour, it's just like potentially showing you know, a new audience and, you know, talking about it in a different and interesting way. And it reminds me of, I, I talked to um, Johnny that was in On Broken Wings that does Johnny Cupcakes. And he said, like, when he saw it, uh, he came to one of our tour dates with the Acacia Strain last year. And he was like, this is the same shit that I did when I was starting Johnny Cupcakes. Like, I'd have buttons and t-shirts and stuff, like, available at the table. would like, talk about it after the show. Um, so that that kind of, like, reaffirmed my idea of, like, it is interesting and, and hardcore has such like a DIY mentality anyway, that people just thought it was interesting that this was my business that I was bringing on the road with me. Now you finish the tour and you are no longer employed. Where does your brain go day one after unloading the van? And how do you immediately pick up the reins and start running as I have a job. It's called being in my house, selling the stuff that I created. So I think day one back from tour was like, that was the coolest tour ever. I'm so excited. And then it instantly went to, fuck, I don't have a job. I really have to like, this is my job. I really need to like get ahead of this. And uh, it was cool because of the, all the tours I brought Candy Corpse on, the Knock Loose tour was a really cool tour because it had like a younger audience than some of the hardcore tours that we've done. And uh, 
had a lot of people that were interested in it that would like come up and talk about it. So I came off of that tour feeling more confident about the brand, but also realizing that I really needed to like kick my own ass if I wanted this to be my full-time job. Um, and I, I placed orders for a few things while I was out on tour because it takes a few weeks for it to come in. And I just kind of went into full-time, like kind of breaking down my week of like, I need to be posting on social media every single day because the Instagram algorithm is fucked. And if you don't, you can't really grow your business. Um, so just like making sure I had content to post every day, making sure I was photographing all the different stuff, constantly trying to think of ahead and find like what is going to be popular, what is currently popular, but more than anything, finding like what the next thing was going to be because it's, it's easy to see what's popular and to just jump onto that. And I think that's what everyone did with pins. But if you notice a lot of pin shops have kind of gone out in popularity or gone out of business because they didn't really adapt to like what else is out there, like, you know, going into apparel or going into homewares or different shit like that. So I think that day one back was just about me, like really sitting down and seeing like, what do I have to do to make sure that I have like a steady flow of product coming in that I'm always thinking of new ideas and that I also have time to draw. Now I want to walk you into uh, day two and after a lot of people think of self-employment as I get to sleep in and I get to go ahead and decide when I want to have lunch with my friends. And I'd like for you to dispel those. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because I did get that and it, it really pissed me off at first. Like a lot of people's attitude that like, I wish I worked for myself because I have to work this job that I don't like. And I was like, I work harder for myself than I've ever worked for anyone else. And I work longer hours without getting that extra hourly, you know what I mean? It's like you put in so much more time and so much more effort to make something that you created successful than if you're just going in and punching a clock for like an eight hour shift. Um, And I think a lot of people don't get that, that you do pass up on a lot of things that would be more fun to do because you're just stressed about having a successful business and not fucking something up for yourself. Would you say that there was a, at any point in the first couple of weeks of being self-employed that you needed to find that extra kick in your own ass, or were you immediately motivated to kick your own ass to not fall back down? I think that uh, kind of the latter, I was immediately motivated to work as hard as possible. And I think that's still to this day, the hardest thing that I struggle with is balancing my time because if I, am unchecked, I will work 12 to 13 hours every day of the week. So it's like, I have to, and I talk to you about this all the time. Like I have to figure out a way to budget my time and not, you know, work smarter, not harder, which is something that I right away jumped into working longer hours than I would have worked back at parks. And I've slowly pulled back to a normal time schedule, but I'm still trying to figure that out. Now in when you said that you needed to find a market beyond just pins, you're talking about apparel and you are starting to see what was the trend that was going to come next. How did you manage dealing with overseas production and how did you even start outsourcing and all that? Like, how did you get that beyond the pins? Like, how did you even like start finding the sources Right. So a lot of it has actually come from people within hardcore or, you know, them knowing someone as far as pins go. So pins, uh, 
they're manufactured in China or Indonesia. There's not an American pin company. And if a company tells you they'll make it in America, they're just a middleman that's ordering and charging you a fee. So after I figured that out, I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, I know a lot of uh, screen printers and stuff from doing merch for Year of the Knife. And I know people that do embroidery. So I was kind of already set up to do apparel in the States and have a quick turnaround on it. But for certain products that like pins or like purses that it's like very difficult to find a manufacturer here. I tried to figure out through, like I have another friend um, that I met through hardcore that owns an apparel company. And like, she was nice enough to kind of sit down and talk to me about here's how you design a sample for something. And you have to pay a sample fee for every different size. And like, there's all these different approvals and all these different things you go through. Um, And I think one of the biggest things with working overseas, a lot of people frown on it and a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to buy it unless it's made in America. But I think that one, you have to take into account that not everything is made in America. And two, it's on you to do, you know, your due diligence and do your research on is the company ethical? Are they having fair work conditions? Are they paying their employees fairly and giving them time off? And I mean, you'll find that, you know, anybody can send a video or, uh, you know, pictures of their factory. And and I would encourage people if they do order overseas, always ask them, Hey, can I have a video of the production process of my specific work so that you know that it's their factory. Um, But also to just like kind of check when your, uh, your rep is going on vacation, when they're getting time off, if they're answering you like every single day of the week, obviously that's not like a fair work schedule. So like always make sure you're keeping up on those things. If you can't physically be in the location where you're getting your manufacturing done. I am absolutely just impressed that you're able to do that. Um, and that's an amazing insight and great information. So we are at the point where the band is hitting even more energy and steam because you came off this killer tour and you were about to have a re-release of the original material out and we're about time for another, this is hardcore and yet you're in full candy corpse mode. And you had mentioned the overworking. What were you doing that wasn't hardcore that wasn't candy corpse to cool your brain down and kind of let you have some kind of rest? Hmm. <laughs> or was, was I there doing no anything? <laughs> I'm trying to think, was I doing anything? Uh, I like to play video games and I like to read. I have like a pretty crazy manga collection and graphic novel collection, but I think I I do kind of struggle with not giving myself a lot of downtime. And lately what I've been doing is trying to get out of the house and like go on hikes and just leave my phone at home. Cause I feel like Smart. that's the best way to like completely unplug yourself is to just Absolutely. like be out in nature, soak up some vitamin D, like unplug your brain and just like, exercise do something positive that's not being absorbed in what's my next task what's on the computer what's going on on social media like that shit can get so taxing on your mental health do you feel that because candy corpse became your bread and butter and that you were forced to look at the band and the band business transactions in a way more hey this isn't some small band this is a business and what kind of steps did you take from learning about taxes and stuff to Candy Corpse did you apply to Year of the Knife? I think, I don't think it was necessarily a negative thing that I 
kind of shifted gears to thinking of the band as a business. Um, not saying that you're saying it was, but I, I think that it was more of a positive. Like I was learning so much with Candy Corpse that could be quickly applied to the band. If I wanted to get anything that I learned how to manufacture through Candy Corpse, I could now manufacture for the band. So it was like all these different things where I was easy to shift between both and then also just get more on top of like logging expenses and keeping accounts. And because I think a lot of people get fucked on taxes because they don't think of it like it's a business, but it's like, you're still making money. And at some point that's going to catch up to you. So it's like the sooner that you can keep that shit organized and think of it in that way, the better off you're going to be long-term. We've had multiple conversations again about probably everything under the sun, but one of the things that I am probably most proud of you is that you were never the person who wanted to rush off and put a person between you and the work that was involved in the band and specifically with like specific merch companies and people coming forward and trying to sell you on the idea of a merch store. And I really wanted you to kind of give your philosophy on the pros and cons of other people making your merch and charging you a basically a dealer's fee for having it. Right. So I think that a lot of people get excited at the idea of not having to do any of the work and kind of just like putting their name out there and letting it run. But if you are able to do it yourself and you have one, you have control, quality control, you have more control over like seeing, you know, where the people are that are supporting your band, different shit like that. Um, And then also it's just like, if you look at the cuts that different merch companies take, some of them are very fair. And then some of them, it's like, it seems like a great deal, but you're not understanding that like the like 60 or 70% they give you is after they pay all of their employees and pay a design fee and pay for packaging and like all these different things where it's like, if you just pay for the merch and ship it out, you're going to be, not only is it like sick because like, then you can work with your band or whoever's like close by to get these orders out it's also just like more rewarding because you're all the money you're investing into your band, like you're getting back. And uh, I think, I think it's funny that to see like some people like not want to do that because once again, you look at a band like code orange, they still run their own merch store. Like they could easily have any number of stores like running their shit, but they still get together and you know, they, they go through like the manufacturing, all that shit, those masks that they just made, like, I think their manufacturer last minute was like, oh, we can't make them the way that you wanted to. So like uh, Eric and Reba just like learned how to mold this metal and make these masks or mold the plastic to make these masks. And it's like, if you're able to do that, not only do you give yourself a new skill set that you can apply to other areas of your life, but you're also like helping yourself and helping your band in the process. Sounds like someone who booked concerts and poured concrete. (laughs) <laughs> and make a podcast <laughs> no i i you just amazingly touched on one of the continuing threads through all the episodes that i've recorded so far and plan to record where this culture is founded in diy ethics and right although there are plenty of amazing successful friends who have created entire jobs that help other people by being merch stores there's a level at you can be a band and sell your own shirts online. And as you said, you know, you do have more control over a product. I know you were kind of touching a little bit on like 
you said it quickly and I wanted you to kind of go into like, you said, you know, where your fans are. Can you like elaborate what your thought process with that specific sentence? Oh, right. So one thing that's really cool about if you're running your own store, you can actually look into like the analytics of it and see, sometimes you can get demographic information like male, female, or age, but you can always get where they're located that they're getting stuff shipped to. So it's like when you're planning out these tours, if you want to be really smart about it, you could look and see like, where are the people that are buying our merch? Like, where are they coming from? And then you can kind of in your mind, if you're planning a full US or if you're just planning like a regional tour, you can kind of plan that around like where the people are that are supporting you that are probably going to come out and see you in person. Like if somebody's willing to pay shipping to get, you know, your merch or your record, they definitely want to see you if, if you're in their town. So I think that's something that a lot of people probably overlook when picking the cities or picking where they're going to go. See, that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for when I ask questions to someone. This whole podcast is basically me hoping that through the people that I bring on the show can teach people in the game right now just some more things like that. And that was perfect. You have an entire Instagram that is probably just as organized as your house. How did you manage to start bringing in other products and other artists? Was it because of the influence of social media or do you feel like it went hand in hand that as you needed to grow, you were looking at social media for how to bring the brand somewhere else? So I'll touch on first what you said about the page being organized Uh, Something that I learned really early on and when people ask, you know, how do you build a brand or how do you build an Instagram page? Something that people always are really attracted to is like a cohesive looking feed. So whether that be like a color scheme or like a consistent filter that you use, uh, you can always tell that people, you know, the, the pages and the brands that have the biggest followings tend to do a really good job of having like a very consistent brand look and feel. Um, And outside of that, like branching into different products, I think it was, kind of a natural progression. I knew that I I wanted to get to apparel. Like I knew that that was something I wanted to do for Candy Corpse, but doing it through Year of the Knife, like it's an expensive investment to just jump into it right off the bat. And it it's taken me years to get to the point where I can launch like a collection of clothing rather than being like, here's one t-shirt or like pre-order this t-shirt so I can afford to fund it to like order them. Um, not that there's anything wrong with doing pre-orders, but that's always been something I would love to do like capsule releases throughout the year for different seasons. And I think that's something that I've always been working and building up towards. And just something that, like a perfect example, I'm working right now, I've made face masks as face masks masks are really needed during the pandemic. And I've been doing like different cute design masks. And from that, that manufacturer also does different types of clothing. So it's like, I'm always, when I find a manufacturer that I'm confident in their conditions and I'm confident in our working relationship, I ask them, hey, what other products do you, can you manufacture? Or do you have any sister factories? Because some of them, it's like they're owned by something that owns three different factories that one of them does bags and one of them does pins and keychains and one of them does garments. So sometimes you can find connections from contacts that you already have. And they'll say, hey, here's our full catalog of different things that we can make. And if you're looking for this type of thing, reach out to this contact and tell them that I sent you. So it's just about really trying to figure out. Sometimes I find products to make that I didn't even know I was I wanted to make. Like those holographic tote bags that I made, they're like uh, kind of like an iridescent vinyl. 
I was just talking to one of my manufacturers and they sent a sample of that. And I was like, I want to make these bags. These are cool. <laughs> so it's like you get new ideas just from seeing the products that they can make. A quick question on what you just touched. You said you were speaking to one of the representatives, that manufacturer. Because you're speaking, are you talking to an intermediary from here who's just working in liaison or how much direct contact do you have with the people that are obviously built, you know, building and making the products that you're selling? No, I do fully direct to factory because one, it gives you the best pricing so that you can offer the best pricing to your customers. But two, then it's like the least room for error. Uh, I think a lot of people assume that people in other countries won't understand something or don't, you know, if English isn't their first language, they're not going to understand what you're saying. They completely do. And also like I provide so many different photos and like mock-ups that it's really easy to communicate directly with the factories. And uh, yeah, I think that just going direct, like there are a lot of, I think people get tempted by middlemen because they say like, oh, if anything goes wrong, we'll fix it. But a lot of times they're the reason that things go wrong because they're not understanding exactly what you're saying. And then they're relaying that information to someone else. Did you use one and make that mistake or did you just preemptively go the more direct Maddie route of fuck it, I'm doing it myself? I was lucky because Max gave me a direct contact um, to be able to just kind of jump right in. But I I did have a lot of friends that had bad experiences with uh, going through middlemen or even friends that were like, oh, why do you order in China? Because I found this guy that does in US. And then it's like you look through what he does and it's like, a page that if you comment, like, aren't these made in China, they delete and block you. So I was like, you just have to kind of do some research into the background of what you're trying to manufacture and what you're doing. And know that like the internet is such a crazy resource. Like you can figure this shit out yourself as hard as that. Like, I feel like people always want an easy way into like, what's the steps to make a small business. It's like, you have to be passionate about whatever you're creating, but you also have to work fucking hard and do your research and realize that you have like infinite resources at your fingertips if you have a computer or a phone. On the very first episode, and again, throughout the episodes, that is a reoccurring theme, that the internet is the most vast resource, and yet people just seem to just look at it and go, I, can someone do this for me? I don't feel like making the effort. Oh, right. <laughs> your efforts made are paying off huge dividends and just satisfaction of doing it yourself. Where did you hit a wall somewhere? Like where did you find yourself either researching a product and thinking, Hey, this could be cool and it didn't work out. Or you were looking at something and then maybe you made a small order and they didn't sell as well. Like give we've been only talking about your successes. Give me some of your like stumbling blocks or pitfalls of doing it right now. Uh, I definitely, when I was trying to figure out how to manufacture purses, um, I went to a few different companies that were like recommended to me by friends and then a few that I found through recommendations uh, from other factories. And I definitely wasted money on samples for a few of them that like the samples didn't turn out at all how I wanted. And, you know, once you pay that, it's like you don't get a refund just because it's not right. They can try to fix it for you. But if it's just the quality's not up to par, then it's just like you're out that money. Um, but I think, and I tell people this all the time, like that's just part of the game. Like you have to sometimes, it's kind of like just investing money. You're investing in finding the best manufacturer that you can build a relationship with. So sometimes you have to lose money on these things that aren't exactly up to your standards. 
Um, but make sure that you don't bend your standards just because you're like hitting a roadblock and not finding it right away. Uh, I'm trying to think what else has been difficult. Uh, sometimes when I told you I was talking to my friend about the apparel, like I really was having a hard time. It can be overwhelming trying to find who makes what apparel and then trying to um, also just like blank t-shirts. Like I've learned a lot from talking to friends that work for streetwear companies. Cause a lot of streetwear companies use like a specific brand of t-shirt. That's really nice. And I always thought that they got their blanks manufactured somewhere, but then you find out there's like all these like certain specialty garments that you can order and get screen printed on that have like a really nice feel and quality. But that was something that I couldn't figure out. And I had to kind of, I'm not saying that everything is always on the internet. Like you, if you have the resources and you have the friends that can give you a heads up and can kind of point you in the right direction, by all means go for it. Um, I remember when I was first trying to do like dressmaking, I talked to Ernie that's from Delaware that uh, he's an old hardcore guy. And Future he, podcast guest. Yes. Bunk. Ernie's sick, but Ernie uh, worked for Under Armour and he gave me like a lot of feedback on like finding a pattern maker, like how you get the patterns made that you you send those patterns out to the factories to manufacture them. Like I learned all these things from finding people that knew the information or looking up the information and reaching out to someone. Again, what we're hearing here is your drive and inspiration and not settling and you're constantly able to just find people and ask questions. And I feel like half of the problem that people run into is that they don't want to make that, Hey, can you help me? Or it's a weird, it's a weird position to be in. Hey, can you do this for me? Is an easier thing said than someone saying, I'd like to do this. Can you hook me up with your contact or how did you learn it? What do you think in you makes it easy for you to seek out if not the information, but the people that can give you the correct information. I think it's all about just like using your resources and using the connections that you do have to help grow. Like you can't expect if you ask someone for help, like I could have reached out to Ernie and he could have said, I don't know, that's not my section. But instead he said, oh, I know somebody else that does that. Like there's always going to be someone you reach out to that might shut you down, even if they're your friend or even if they're an acquaintance, just because you know, they don't have time to teach you how to do what you want to learn. But I think the biggest disservice you do yourself is not trying to learn as much as you can and reach out to every person that knows more than you. Like, don't think that you know more than someone else or that you could do it better. If it's what they're doing, like trust their expertise and learn from them to make yourself better. As Candy Corpse has grown, do you feel or has ever someone come into the play as hey, you're doing so well, but what I could do for you is really going to make things easy. Has that happened to you or no? Yeah, I've gotten uh, a few. Actually, it was funny the other day, like a merch company that does like a bunch of like big (laughs) rappers and like uh, pop stars and stuff like that. They reached out and said that they could handle my distribution. And I've had that happen a few times where like companies have said that they could do like the drop shipping for me. But I... While I don't know if that's, you know, someday that might, I might be at a level where I need someone to do drop shipping, but right now I can still handle shipping me and Brandon at the house. We do sometimes run out of space as far as like keeping inventory, which is, can be frustrating. But uh, I think that people are always going, if they see that you're doing well, or if they perceive that you're successful, they are going to want to try to get a cut of that for themselves. And you always have to be cognizant of that. 
if you are starting a small business and if you are even a small band, like you have to be cognizant of why are these people reaching out to you? It's because they think you're doing something right. Can you do something right for yourself for a long enough period until you need some help? Or are you just going to jump on? This is easier. Somebody can take care of this for me. You segued right into the next thing I was going to say. Segway. <laughs> I like it. As a band grows often, I feel that there is a direct link between social presence and expectations that bands now are looking towards having a agent or a manager. And I know that we've had this talk for hours upon hours, but what do you think drove you to go the way that you did where a lot of the decisions the band made were not based upon somebody bringing you something and being like, this is the best thing I could put in front of you. So I will say this for those of you on the podcast that don't know, I bullied Joe into being our agent. I like really annoyed the shit out of him until he agreed. Um, But in doing that, I think that, and this isn't to say that like we have a lot of other friends that are agents that are, you know, do a great job and this is no diss to them, but I think a lot of times when that is your career and that is your profession, you're going, you know, it makes sense for you to try to push these different opportunities on bands and to get more annoyed when they don't take them because it's like, that is your livelihood. You're doing the work for them. And I'm sure it's frustrating as an agent when like you get a cool tour and the band's like, oh, I don't fuck with that band. I don't want to do it. Or like, oh, people will say it's lame on the internet, so I don't want to do it. But uh, one of the things that I thought, oh, I ask you and I have asked you for help so much since we started as a band. So when we were getting to the point where we realized, hey, we probably do need some help with this. We're getting, you know, a little bit more heavy into the touring and we need a little bit more connections and we need sometimes... I hate to say it because it's like when you're starting out, you do not need an agent. But if you get to a certain point, sometimes people just respect you more. Like bigger people in the industry will respect talking to an agent versus talking to the band. They think they can manipulate the band more or give them a shittier offer if they don't have an agent. Um, That's the other kind of flip side of it. And same thing, like if you're trying to get sponsorships or like endorsements or anything, like a lot of times people don't take you seriously if it's the band personally reaching out. So there's pros and cons to both. But I think that the way that we went and kind of um, convincing you to continue doing what you were doing and kind of like looking out for us is I knew that you weren't going to tell us to go on a tour that didn't really make sense for us as a band just because it benefited you. And I think that's like a really important thing to have that relationship with somebody that is your agent or anybody that is kind of guiding you as a band. You want to make sure that they're doing it for the right reasons and that they're Like, I know that if you were like, hey, I got this tour and it's this, and I like really, really thought it was a bad idea, you wouldn't be pushing it on us just because you would get a cut from it. And I know that you have the experience and the connections to be able to kind of network a lot more than I could to set up like a full U.S. tour. With what you said, I have to just say that there are people that I am insanely um, indebted to for all the work they did. And we actually have a few of the, I would say OGs of hardcore booking as guests on this podcast in the weeks to come. Tim Boer. Tim Boer, um, Stormy <laughs> Shepherd, And there's certain folks that from my experience that are just cut from the kind of cloth that will 
drive a band's future instead of wearing them out on repetitive kind of like redundant touring just so that way the money's coming in and there's a new drive towards a music industry path that I don't see being completely hand in hand with the future of hardcore, which is why I was not trying to be this agent for you, but Mm -hmm. also seeing what a lot of the agents who are working with bands of your size, it's exactly the kind of things that they would push forward. It's just like, well, I know it's not a good look and I just hate that word. I hate when people say it to me. <laughs> I, I, if thank God it's said to me on the telephone and not in person, because I would try not to punch them. So, um, all I can say is that, from my perspective, is that I don't look at myself as being a booking agent as much as being a person who tries to make sure that when opportunities come your way, that you're dealt fairly, and that way you're not pushed into these, well, you have to do it situations because any band, no matter the size can manage to still be relevant with their fans without having to completely whore themselves out on stupid tours. And so with candy corpse growing, you had touched on it, but I just wanted to catch everybody else up. Brandon, Maddie's husband, and you know partner in the band had to become the full-time employee of candy corpse how did that work out yeah so that was kind of like the next big step with the business was brandon continued working for state parks after i left and he worked out in the like out in the park so we never worked in the same office but hold on um, hold on whoa. I, I didn't know that I, you didn't I, know I, that I thought he was like in like a cubby. Like he don't seem like a park ranger to me. You got to tell me. I don't know what he did, but you got to let me know what Brandon oh did. Oh my God. So he wasn't a park ranger. He was like, uh, he was a manager of volunteer coordination. So the parks will get tons of people volunteering saying they'll do trail work or they'll paint, you know, buildings or whatever. And Brandon would coordinate the volunteer projects. And then he would like oversee the groups when they would go out and do trail work and like teach people how to like identify poison ivy remove it from the trails cut certain invasive like trees and shit back like cut weeds back all that fun stuff that's actually really cool and i've always wondered as my wife and i get further into the hobby of hiking who the fuck actually keeps these like that's actually cool because i've always wanted to know how and who does this shit yeah and to get on the state parks thing for a second one of the things that's really cool for Delaware, at least, is there's people volunteer so much. It's equivalent to like 50 full-time employees. That's how much people volunteer in the parks to like keep up trail maintenance and stuff. Well, I absolutely love state parks. I love being out in nature. And as I get older, I think that I would take a vacation somewhere in a national park over a resort any day, just because it's incredible that we've managed to keep the natural beauty of these places and that people are willing to volunteer to keep doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Where did the conversation start where you're like, Hey, do you want to work full time or how did that work out where you decided or you two together decided that Brandon would come and just work for the brand from home? I think I was getting to the point where I was starting to struggle shipping the orders by myself. And then I was having Brandon help me after work, but then it was kind of putting him 
in the position of he gets off work to come work. And I think like the more that I thought about it, I was kind of, once again, it was one of those things that we probably had him working at parks longer than we needed to, but I really wanted to be sure that we would like be financially okay with him coming to work for Candy Corps. Um, So once I felt like, Hey, you're working a ton here. And I think that we can sustain it for Candy Corps to be both of our full-time jobs. Do you like, would you want to quit work? But is that something you would want to do? Cause I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Brandon and I've been together since we were 15. So we've been together a super long time, but some people might not want to work full-time with their partner and play in a band full-time with their partner. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a lot of together time, which I love, but like, I didn't know, I didn't want to push that on him. Like, is this something you want to do? And he was like, yeah, I would love to work from home because when he's not packing with me, he can do like a lot of illustration commissions and he's been doing a lot lately with doing like album covers and merch designs and stuff. So it kind of works out where he could push himself more to put himself out there as an artist and as an illustrator. And I could have him at home helping me with candy corpse. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I mean, his, his demeanor meshes well with yours because you're outgoing and he has sentences that will either go on for 30 seconds or two words. So <laughs> there's a beautiful balance between you two. So I couldn't see you guys fighting from home much about just being there and doing what you guys do. Did you find a role for him beyond just with the shipping? Does he do things uh, in design work with Candy Corps or is he just mainly just an extra hand on or does he have other artistic roles in the company? Yeah. Like he'll, he does shipping mostly, but a lot of times um, if I get stuck, like I'll be drawing something and if I get stuck or don't like the way it looks, uh, I actually posted a little while ago, but I'll like give it to him and then he'll draw off of it and then give it back to me. So a lot of times we'll do that where like I have an idea and then I kind of let him draw it and I draw it so that we can both work on it. Um, And then otherwise sometimes I'll just have him do like lettering and like different design work for candy corpse like i have like a a sale that's coming up in october for like a lot of the like first items that i still have extras of so i'm gonna like call it a crypt sale and i had him do like a pretty cool lettering thing for it but yeah he it's cool because it's like he's very artistic and he has a different eye for it than i do and we have very different design styles so it's interesting to like try and mesh them together would you say that the relationship beyond husband and wife when it goes into candy corpse and then also again into year of the knife, would you continue to use the word? It's more of a partnership or do you feel like, Hey, candy corpse is still my baby. I have final say, or do you guys have your little balance when you need to discuss candy corpse or year of the knife things? I definitely think the band, I think is more of a partnership with everyone. Um, And with candy corpse, it's funny because I feel like I'm always kind of more like it's a partnership but Brandon's like this is your like he's like you did this like this is your business and your baby he's like I'll help you however I can but like this is at the end of the day ultimately yours Um, and I think a lot of times like I feel like he does help me so much and work so hard so it's hard for me to like not think of it as like a joint project but I think Candy Corpse probably is something that is more mine and he just like really supports me on it and the band's more like a partnership was it a scary choice looking at the money and the stability of Brandon's job to want to quit and then, you know, take him on and, you know, you lose that stability and all the other aspects, or were you more relieved that he was able to join the team and do more of his own stuff? It was kind of a mixture of both. 
I think that I'm always in my brain preparing for like the apocalypse. <laughs> so I was a little bit afraid, like, what if it doesn't go well? Or what if, you know, our sales suddenly drop and then I don't really have a lot of work or like need a lot of help. But I think it's one of those things that, you know, we were prepared for it and I definitely needed his help. And like, our, I'm able, I wouldn't be able to do Candy Corpse now by myself. Like there's just no way. Um, and I wouldn't want to expand beyond me and him right now. So I think that it really did, end up working out for the best. And Brandon has always been really cool. Like when I quit parks, like he was like, if I have to get a second job for this to work for you, I will. And then same thing when he came to work for Candy Corpse, he was like, if there's a point that I have to get like a part-time job, even if it's just for a little bit, like I'll do that. He's never been, he's always been really, really supportive, which has made it easy. Cause there, like I said, there was a lot of people that were like, this is a dumb idea. <laughs> Where you get into the next stages of the brand is when you start looking beyond the pins and just the things that you guys could create, did you find yourself looking for other people to, whether they did a design or a collaborative work to try to push you guys further, or did you already have an idea on the direction you were going to take? So I, I love collab projects and I've done them since we started the band, whether it be with like other artists or other tattoo artists or, you know, collabs with bands. I've always thought that was a really interesting way to, you know, kind of highlight like another person's work, but also like make something interesting together. Um, I think that moving forward, I definitely want to continue with collaborations, but I also have like an idea for how to grow the brand and how to make it, uh, how, how to like give it longevity. Cause I think that was something that I always saw with pins is I knew from the time that they were like peak popular, I knew that it wasn't always going to be that way. And I think that I'm glad that I adjusted and added different things to the shop so that it's not just a pin shop. I don't know if that fully answered your question. Let me know. No, it absolutely did. When it comes to pins, do you see yourself as someone who I used to do pins or is it something that you're going to continue just because you have favorites that people still buy. I think, I think the pins will like, I don't want to say they'll always be a part of the shop, but I still enjoy continuing to make pins. And I think that our customers are definitely still pin collectors. And that's such a big foundation of what built the shop. I just, I think that I focus a lot more, like a lot of times I focus on apparel releases and then some of the designs that I do from them. I think, oh, this will work as a pin too. Rather than thinking like, what's the next pin launch? I'm thinking about bigger products and how I can apply them kind of across the shop. Oh, and I just remembered from the last question that you asked me about like different designs, something that I've been trying to step back from recently, which I think that a lot of people as their business grows probably have trouble with is like relinquishing some of the power and relinquishing some of the responsibilities to like both to Brandon. And then also I have sometimes I'll do collaborations or sometimes I'll commission another artist. So it's like, if I have an idea for something, but my week is completely full with shipping and ordering new products, I don't have time to create products as much as I used to, but I do still have all of these ideas. So I've been trying to kind of shift into hiring other artists and commissioning people with like kind of stepping more into creative directing along with being the designer. With the rise of Candy Corpse and two full employees, we have to look at also Year of the Knife and the inertia of 
just absolute madness that was going on for you guys. I mean, you'd gone from, I don't know, can we do it without, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're going to have Tyler sing to, you went on the tour, you do this is hardcore. And then next thing you know, boom, you're doing another tour. It's a full U.S. Uh, and you're supporting Terror and you're playing with Harm's Way and Backtrack. And you also got asked to fill in for a band. Um, how did you manage making that tour happen while also fulfilling the obligations with Candy Corps? That tour was awesome. So uh, I filled in for Candy as well as playing for Year of the Knife on that tour. And actually, a uh, brief stitch of the Knock Loose tour, I filled in for Jesus Peace. So when Candy needed to fill in, they knew that I filled in for Jesus Peace and asked me if I would. Um, but yeah, so like that tour... I'm sorry. Could you, could you repeat the beginning of the question? I was just saying about how insanely busy both things were. The band. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And so how like did you manage organizing and making sure that when the tour, whether while it was happening and then over essentially, how did you manage to have them both happen and then not come home to a complete fucking dumpster fire from candy corpse because you were out on tour playing in two bands. Right. So it was definitely difficult. And I think that I was starting to get into the mindset more this year. Like we had more time off in between these tours when we first started like really picking up touring where we'd have like at least like a month or two of downtime. And I was really planning out when we would get our tour schedule, I was planning full drops around them. So it's like, if I order on this date, I should receive the product on this date. It'll take me this many days to photograph it and put it up on the site. And then it was also when we were on tour, I had Brandon's mom coming over to the house and shipping out packages while the website was still open. So it was like, it was a lot of different weird moving pieces and trying to plan several months out instead of just planning, like, what are we going to do this month or what are we going to do next month? I was really trying to like plan my whole year out. And it wasn't until it honestly wasn't until this year when we were supposed to have like such a heavy touring schedule that I was like really truly mapping out exactly what was going to be released, which things were going to be tour exclusive items. Um, and then since coronavirus, it's just shifted to fully online. So it's like my brain is almost entirely trying to navigate candy corpse and then just figure out, you know, doing podcasts or doing like different interviews and, uh, hopefully doing some more like live stream stuff with the air of the knife in the meantime. But it's like, since that's, settled down so hard right now i've kind of just been fully focused on candy corpse is it hard being you and dealing with a completely separate entity known as you're the knife and coming in and being like i've got all these great ideas and i know how we're exactly going to do this and then how do you deal with the pushback when sometimes what you feel and see as a good idea doesn't get the same excitement or gets completely like, no, nah, we don't want to do that. How do you manage that in your head? Um, honestly, I think that I talked to you about this earlier. I feel like my brain is like constantly ping ponging around a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different, like trying to navigate what to do with the band, what to do with candy corpse. How do they fit together? How do they have nothing to do with each other? I don't really have a good answer for it besides like just trying to think long-term and also trying not to think about them as a unit. Like I try to separate the two so that I can like more easily break down what needs to be done or like think out a plan. 
I was actually more like saying when you go into talking with the band mm. and you're like, here's this great idea I have. Cause I know with candy corpse, you are able to have the freedom of the chaotic, obsessive, creative driven brain to see through these ideas. But the opposite of that happens sometimes with you're the knife where your best idea, great plan is not so well received. How do you handle uh, okay. that? How do you handle that is what I'm kind of getting at. So being in a band, I mean, anybody that's played in a band knows that everyone has, there's some people in the band that are going to be more passive, go with the flow. And there's other people that are going to have the bigger ideas or be more adamant that their ideas go through. And I think that when you have, especially with our band, which has every one of us can do design work, Tyler and Brandon both illustrate And then like when I have the different skill sets that I do, it's sometimes difficult because we truly go into it as like everyone has an equal vote. So sometimes it's like if one of us feels really strongly about something and someone else disagrees, you kind of have to just let go. Like I have to understand with the band, it's not the same thing as where like Candy Corpse is like, if I want to do it, I do it. With the band, it's like you have to be considerate about what other people think about it because it is such like a collaborative and collective effort to make the band happen. And I know, I do know that there's some bands that it's like one person does all the merch, nobody else touches it or sees it. Like the first time they see it is when the merch goes live. And I think in some ways that type of stuff works to like help keep from arguing about stupid shit when everybody has a different opinion. But I think for the most part, like it's good to have the open communication that we do and to just like sometimes, even if you're frustrated, just be like, all right, well, if the majority of us want to do it one way, that's worked for us so far. So just go with it. It is a unique situation to deal with year of the knife just in a room when there is plans, because it's exactly what you said. There's definitely a weird mix between, Oh, well, whatever's best. And, you know, we're going to go with the flow, but then you can easily see an ardent. No, this is the way it needs to be. Or, you know, as when we need to discuss like the next band move, here's why this band move works for everybody. And it takes some some time. Do you feel that the balance between having full control and then needing to share control when it comes to the band versus brand, do you think that the balance helps you mitigate things when things don't work out for Candy Corps? I think it does because I think that I can be so, like you said, just like obsessive or like perfectionist about the way that things have to be executed. And I think that having something where it's like, this wasn't exactly the way that I would do it and it still worked out. I think that's important to have that balance because I think that if I had another thing where I had 100% control over it, it would just like, not only would it feel like it was too much pressure to be the only one that was deciding everything, but it would just be I think that I would be way more inflexible than I am. And I'm already pretty difficult. <laughs> I would say not difficult, but that you very seldom are on a hill that you're willing to die on. If it's not something that you have given insane thought or research, or you're legitimately like, no, this is actually the best way, which is where a lot of times when you work for me, I'm like, just dude, just get it done. Like <laughs> do it. I'm a, I'm a passer offer. Like, Hey, can you do this? Cool. All right. I'm going to go over here. Yeah. Right. You're, better, you're better than me at it. So I don't care how you do it. Just get it done. So I can see that you may think that you are um, difficult, but it's actually not the case. 
I think that too, like when you have a tried and true method of something working and somebody tells you they want you to try it another way, it can be frustrating. Like it can be very difficult to want to do things your way. And I think it, a lot of being in a band and a lot of just like working in general is understanding that people have different communication styles and that you have to like meet other people where they are. You can't like expect them to come to you every single time. And I think that's something that's good about like the way that you do the fest is you have people that do things that you trust to get their job done and you don't micromanage it. Like, it's like, why would you ask someone to help you with something if you don't think they can do it without you sitting over their shoulder? You might as well do it yourself at that point. Jocko says decentralized command. (laughs) He is correct. Um, I was actually fucking around, but in seriousness, <laughs> I, I would never ask somebody who I knew their talents and knew what they were capable of and then stand over top of them because it would drive me fucking nuts if that's what would happen to me. Moving into uh, a quicker question uh, format here. What do you think the biggest disappointment for you has been running a business and having the responsibility over top of you? Hmm. I think the biggest disappointment, and I think that I've been fortunate that I haven't had like a ton of things like this, but when you really have a cool idea and you think that it's going to go really well and it's just not well received, I think that's always going to be hard to deal with because it's like, if you feel passionate about something enough to create merchandise of it and it doesn't sell well, it just feels like it was a stupid idea. But there's, there's a little bit of that. Um, I think that sometimes with the overworking thing, I do get a little bit disappointed in myself because I feel kind of bad that like Brandon is constantly telling me like I need to like take a step back and like take time off it because whenever I do, I always work better when I come back to work. So I think that sometimes trying to figure out that balance and like failing at it can feel a bit disappointing. Um, I also think, so one thing that is, it's different. So when you come from hardcore, the hardcore is like built on DIY and people bootlegging shirts and like all this other shit. And, you know, nobody's mad about it. Everybody thinks it's cool and wants to like pick something up. But in the pin community and in like a lot of like the small artists and small business community, there's a lot of like shittiness between artists if like the idea is even similar. And that is also like a huge I don't want to say like a disappointment, but it's something that is like kind of hard to deal with because I've seen friends of mine that do art similar to someone else, but it's still like a unique idea. I've seen them get like super torn down. I've had people like come after me saying that like I copied like something that's so ridiculous and like universal that it's just like, how is that copying them? But it's just like, I feel like people are very protective and very like, it's different. It's weird. And it's weird when you come from hardcore where people like don't care about things being close at all and are literally bootlegging band shirts to like people saying this is also pink and I am upset about it. <laughs> well, there, there are similarities. I'm sure that we all need to arrive at the reality that there are a few original, completely original ideas in any subculture and they are all derivative of other works. So you have been very gracious in watching people try to tear you down because, and I'm just using an example. It's not, and in fact, I'm using one that has nothing to do with what she's done, but like I did that cool thing. That's pink with a knife and you stole it where it's like, Oh, you're the, you are the first person to ever do that. That's 
absolutely amazing. And I could see how that could bother you. But remember also within hardcore, there is a lot of people who are spending too much time on the internet who are saying, oh, well, this riff sounds too much like this riff or, hey, you guys ripped us off with this thing where there are a lot of people who are doing really innovative stuff and we can see them because they're way ahead of us. And then everyone else is, you know, like there's always been that two or three people out there doing things a little differently and they have their own things that they've derived their influences from. Right. And then everybody else is following their suit. And I just find that the whole thing of pointing fingers can get just so messy when everybody is equally guilty of having influences and not creating something completely brand new out of their own uh, imagination. Right. And I think there's a huge difference between like the kid that was bootlegging Cro-Mag's shirt and then the guy from Cro-Mag's being like, this is my band and him being like, I don't care. Did you see that? Like, well, I think there's, there's a big difference between that and like people in the art community having similar ideas and having like similar styles. There's a very big difference between straight up ripping someone's shit off and then also just having similar interests and having similar inspirations. And that's why I've always thought it was like so silly. Like sometimes people will message me and be like, this person is doing art close to you. Like, do you want me to like go after them? And I'm like, no, because they have probably, they like a lot of the same things that I do. And of course, you know, if you are inspired by similar things, you're going to create similar work. I just don't understand like the negativity and like the nasty attitude between like, there can only be one person that's inspired by this set of people or this style (laughs) when it's like not their original style to begin with. Running a brand that is based upon creating things. So people buy them. Is there a threshold for you where you would choose to create something that you're not super in love with because it's popular and it will sell well, or are you most concerned with making sure what you're creating, you really enjoy? I would never make something that I didn't like ever. (laughs) I mean, like, and there's there, the exception to that could maybe be like an article of clothing. I wouldn't wear if I still like love the design and think it fits the brand, but to make something that's popular that I'm not passionate about, I wouldn't care to draw it or to even come up with an idea for it. Um, And I think that a lot of times when people ride the wave of like what's popular and what's cash grabby, they sometimes fall off before it, you know what I mean? Like by the time they get all the stuff in for whatever was trendy, that trend has already passed. So it's like, I try not to navigate and create based off of what's popular, but to see the things that I'm interested in, especially with like fan art or just designing in general, the things that I'm interested in that people also like, like I have to strategically think, will people like this as well? Is it going to sell? Cause I can't make it for just myself, but I would never make something just because I think that it's going to be a hot seller that I don't think is cool or don't believe in. Well, I think chasing profit over passion is going to always have pitfalls, whether it's in a hardcore band or it's making a bunch of pink pins with swords and blood and brass knuckles. <laughs> What do you think the one thing that you had the least amount of expectations for success worked out better? Was it stuff from the band or stuff from Candy Corpse? Huh. I think so. I think that when I started Candy Corpse, I didn't know that it was going to be the thing that 
let me quit my job and work for myself, if that makes sense. I didn't have the, I knew that at some point I would get to the point where I could work for myself, but I didn't know if it was another stepping stone or if it was something that I could actually grow. And I will say from the band, like, I think that this is my first hardcore band. So in my mind, yeah, I would like to tour the world and play everywhere and have people love the music. And, you know, we all love the music and are passionate about it, but I don't think that any of us thought, you know, in our twenties, we would be going to Europe and we would, you know, going to Europe twice and going to UK and touring America a few times and going to Canada. Cause I have tons of family members that have never left the country. So I think with both of them, you know, we believe in what we're doing and we're passionate about what we're doing, but it wasn't this expectation that it will be successful. Just kind of like seeing where it goes. One of the things that after talking to you for two hours plus that will be listened to by the public that just keeps coming back to me is thinking about a younger version of yourself who just wanted to be in a band and get a shot. And you touched on it and said, you know, there were other, you know, times when some guy who also didn't have his gear or maybe didn't know the instrument had the shot. And I want everyone to think about this. If you listen this whole time, you've listened to Madison basically be someone who, you would want in your band, you would want, I mean, if I had a business, I would want her to work for me. And yet it kicks me just thinking about it. Like how much you bring to the table, uh, creatively, passionately, you know, driven and just like the way that you are, that it was because you were a female that you were being overlooked for these positions. And I know that you have been specifically selected at times solely because you're a female to speak on things. And I know that you had actually written an article regarding the tokenism of female fronted music. And I just wanted to give you some time to share your thoughts on this whole thing. Yeah. uh, I think that it's hard, you know, like I think that the current state of hardcore and the current state of the world, it's, it's not like it's not strange to see a girl in a band and there's a lot more women in music. And I think that's an amazing thing, but I think it's something that is still spotlit in a tokenizing way and not in a empowering way and not in an inclusive equal way. It's like a, it's just a weird, almost focus and fetishization of women in music, which is very weird. And sometimes I get, um, I get a bit frustrated because I'll, I'll get asked to do an interview and it'll be with like a publication or, you know, you know, podcast or some sort of interview that I'm excited to do. And the wonder in the back of your mind is always there of, did they ask me specifically to do the interview because they'd like to talk about business things? Or is it because they needed a girl to check off some sort of quota? And more often than not, I get these questions where it's like, what's it like to be a girl and do these things? And I think that this year in particular, before when people would ask that, I would kind of laugh it off and make it like, you know, I, w- I would be polite in the way that I was answering because I was afraid if I answered it in a different sort of way that people would be like, oh, she's a huge bitch. But it's just like, it's something that's frustrating to be asked. And it's something that's not asked of men that are in bands. And I've kind of got to the point where I'm like, this question is stupid. And if it's the only reason that you are asking me to be on here, then I don't really like care to answer the other questions. 
And it's funny because a, a few of the interviews that had asked that didn't mention anything about my gender in the article, which I was grateful for because they were like, well, do you want me to highlight that this is upsetting? And I was like, no, I just don't think that you need to constantly be asking like, what's the female experience? The female experience is that you're asking me these questions that you asked me on here to highlight this thing that has nothing to do with the music that I play and has nothing to do with the things that I'm doing. Like, I think that they're trying to define, they're looking for a clickbaity thing and they're looking for something that gets them attention rather than just highlighting a person. And it becomes very, very draining. Um, and I think that, I don't know what it clicked this past year that I was just like, I'm tired of answering it in a polite way, even if someone thinks that I'm rude. Maybe they will also think again before interviewing someone else specifically so that they can say they had a girl on their publication. One of the things that anyone who knows you will agree to is that you are an absolute unique individual and not just someone. I actually wouldn't ask you a question that I would want the answer to be from the average person because you are above average in every way and one of the weirdest people I know. <laughs> and so I would never assume that you would be a good litmus test for what the average human or person goes through in any situation because you are just truly in just a hot pink land of weirdness and death metal and chaos most of the time at home. Um, we'll do three quick ones and then I'll let you get out of here because we've talked with a little bit. Being that you are married, and is there ever a thought that one of the two things that you do the most will have to take a seat back because you want to explore being uh, a family, or are you not even at that time thinking about these kind of things? I think at this point, it's not something that I really think about Uh I think that the thing that I'm most worried about balancing is like Candy Corpse, Year of the Knife, and then totally outside of that, just me and Brandon's relationship as people and as a couple. Because I think a lot of times working so much together and then touring so much together, a lot of that is hard work. And I think that you also having a long-term relationship and having like a you know successful and solid marriage is about taking time for yourself and not having your whole relationship revolve around work or the shit that's not as fun. Like a lot of the stuff we do together is super fun. I wouldn't want to do it with anyone else, but I also think that there's a time and a place that we need to like give more time to ourselves and go on vacations and go out on hikes and things like that. So it's not necessarily that I'm ever thinking about where the family dynamic is because I feel like I already have a family in him that that's what I, I think I worry about third most. You stole one of my questions oh, by shit. answering exactly where I was going to go to with the next one. But as a friend, I can say that I don't know many people who could be around each other as much as you two, but you're both so equally paired with someone that they enjoy time with that it makes total sense for you to both be in the situation that you guys are in. And I don't have to ask the questions like, oh, is it hard to tour? Because I know that you're a free time. You guys are off eating food that you guys like and doing the things that you like. And it's a really shared experience and super unique in this world for certain. One of the things that I want the world to take away from listening to this conversation is understanding just how much time you put into things. And 
just how much thought you put in things. You're one of the more, not only like thoughtful and caring, but like resourceful humans. Do you feel that there aren't enough people doing the small work, doing the research, doing the, you know, is there anybody I can ask? Or do you feel like they just don't even know where to start at step one? I think most people don't know where they get their start. And I think that that fear of not knowing how to start or not knowing how to just jump in gives them this, well, you know how to do it, so you should tell me sort of thing. Like there's been, it, it really doesn't happen that much anymore. But when I was first, you know, able to quit my job and do Candy Corps full time, I was getting a lot of people that were basically like, who are your contacts and how do I do my own business of the same thing? And it was like, <laughs> I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, well, this person knows, so they should just give me all their information rather than going after it and asking them to kind of mentor you and guide you. A lot of people want the easy answer to things. And I think that you just have to know that if, if, you, if your end goal is that you want to work for yourself and you want to create a business, you have to be really passionate about it. And it's like we talked about earlier. It can't be about what's popular right now or following trends because once that dries up, where is your passion to continue the project? Where is your passion to do something innovative and new that gives people a reason to continue supporting you? So I think people just need to... I wish that I had been more this way, not let fear hold you back from going for it, but also realize that it's not easy. It's not being at home, not working and doing whatever you want. It's putting the time in and also relying on the resources and the knowledge that you have and going after more knowledge to get to your dreams, not expecting the easy way or it to fall into your lap because that's not the story for anybody that's been successful. No, I mean, that's actually the key to success is wanting to work for yourself is an easy thing. Knowing what you want to do and having the immediate plan, that takes time. It takes years of trial and error. It takes insane amounts of whether it's at-home DIY researching or education and previous work experience or learned experiences. And I think enough people in today's world are looking at the internet in various social medias and seeing people of their own age or younger and feeling like, well, they did it and it was so much easier for them. How come it's not me? And they don't realize that whatever you read on the internet and see on the internet, it's not a guaranteed thing. And that was my going to be my last question. What do you think the biggest misconception is for people today looking at the internet and trying to draw inspiration to be their own boss? So it's a strange thing. The internet is both, I'm really grateful for it because I wouldn't have been able to build Candy Corpse into what it is organically without Instagram and Twitter specifically. But I think that something that people really struggle with, and I even personally struggle with is you know, you go on to these social media platforms and you see the very best parts of these people's lives. You don't see when they have a product that failed and they lost all this money. You don't see when something gets delayed and, you know, they don't know when it's coming in. You don't see the bands. I mean, sometimes you see the bands when they break down and they're shitty moments, but it's like you don't see the struggles and the shitty times. You see the very best things that they want to show you. And I think that it's easy to compare yourself to that person has the things that I want or how are they able to get it? And I still don't know where to go, but you have to realize behind every person's account and every person's screen 
is a person that doesn't have all the answers and doesn't have, like I said, like when I was in high school, I wouldn't, if you would have looked at my life, you wouldn't have thought that I went from where I did to coming to here. And I've always had this kind of like weird dichotomy of the things that I've been interested in. But I think that if you have really big dreams and really big ambitions and you're still, especially if you're still younger, like don't expect yourself to still know or to know immediately, like, what am I going to do long-term with my life? Or like, how am I going to pick out a career? I feel so bad that our country is like formed in this way that you're expected to go to school you know, go to college and be in this huge amounts of debt right after you graduate high school and you're expected to know what you want to major in. And of course they tell you, you can take electives and you can like try to figure it out, but they're still charging you thousands of dollars to try and figure it out. So it's like, don't, don't ever be afraid to go after your dreams and to learn more about how to get there, but also don't beat yourself up for not knowing what the big idea is right away. That is absolutely great advice. And a great insight into some of the fallacies of believing everything posted on the internet. Right. You are a great friend and on this podcast, not because I've helped your band out and not because we're friends, but just in your short window of time where you went from being someone who was just hanging out of shows and doing your thing to literally like a force like it was such a short time and i don't know many people who just took the best with that short amount of time and have kicked it in the full gear the way you have and i hope anyone who's listened has understood that this person i'm speaking to is one of the most dedicated insanely hard workers and it has more to do about what you can inspire other people to do and your own story that brought you here And I needed to tell you that I am inspired just hearing you and uplifted. And there's been tons of things that you said in the last two hours that are like, I have to remind myself of this. And I just want to say that it was amazing and very uh, fulfilling to have you here. Thank you so much, Joe. I was so excited when you, when you were telling me that you were going to do the podcast and when you're building up to it. And then when you asked me if I would be a guest on it, I was seriously ecstatic because seeing you know, where you've gone, the things that you've taught me coming up through the fest, learning things that way. I feel like I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't met you. So I do appreciate it. I'm happy to be on. That is absolutely a sentiment that I share. And you've made a lot of things better for me. And I mean, we still have our beautiful little uh, plaque that you made us for when we surprised everybody we're getting married. Oh, yeah. And uh, I love you guys and I'm glad that we got you on the podcast. Can you do the formal shout out all your uh, URLs and apps so people can listen and visit? Yes. Okay. So it is Instagram.com slash XYOTKX. There's also yearofthenife.com for all the different places you can stream and you can get merch there. There is uh, Twitter.com slash yearofthenife facebook.com slash year of the knife, candycorpse.com, instagram.com slash candyxcorpse, and then twitter.com slash candycorpse. Is there a TikTok coming for candycorpse? Oh, there is a TikTok coming. Just waiting to see what this whole TikTok drama, shutdown, whatever's going on with that first. Thank you again. If you are a 
new fan or just want to check them out, go to the social medias and .com. And thank you all for listening. It's hard to listen to that story and conversation and not be just blown away by the many talents and just personal drive that Maddie has. And again, she touched on it, so I don't need to. This was never about getting a girl or making sure we have female listeners. Madison, in any gender, is a driving force and an inspiration. And someone who I absolutely found inspiration in just listening to or just things she said and being reminded, oh yeah, I have to remember that for my own self. I hope you guys had the time to listen to it, whether it was in multiple sections or all at once. We're going to keep these going the way they are. I'm sorry if they're long. It is what it is. You can't talk to people and not dive deep. It's not how I roll. If you want to support the podcast, it's pretty easy. Subscribe to us, follow us, repost us if we repost stuff. Um, we are available at tihcpodcast.com and we're going to keep going weekly. Follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And thank you. Take care.